Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are broadcasting as one of the planets orbiting the Now Playing Network. Here on each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director. Uh, They're landmark films that are breakout first efforts, labors of love, and hidden gems found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what sort of themes and connections you can get when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. This episode will be an epic one because we are looking at one of the outer of outers, American director, John Ford. Hi, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And to go and join us to see what John Ford's all about, we have a returning guest for the Directors Club. You may re- remember him from our epic discussion of the films of Terrence Malick and our bonus episode on the Toronto Film Fest experience. He is also a fellow member of a group that me and Brad are part of, the Chicago Film Discussion Group. Peter Richards, welcome, Pete. Glad you could join us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited to be here for uh, for this director specifically. Glad you are back. Yeah. Now, now what got you to want to join in on the Ford Fund. You know, I was really looking forward to this because somewhat uh, embarrassingly, Ford was a blind spot for me. I had seen some of his better known films, but I've never taken a deep dive and had the chance to see him develop as a director. And really in a lot of ways to see like modern film develop as he went in throughout his early career. So this was a real treat and um, happy to be here and talk it with, talk it out with you guys. Cool. Cool. And I have to say that I am in the similar boat with that with you because I knew of John Ford as mostly the legend behind films like The Searchers and was only heard about him referred to in these uh, hagiographic terms as like this ultimate auteur that was being quoted in by so many other legendary directors. So I also wanted to go look at what was um, what he had done throughout his career. And I I have to say, I found it pretty enlightening and just really shifted my perspective on both him and the stars of his films in a lot of interesting ways. Well, I guess that leaves me as the uh, Ford super fan of the group. I have uh, loved this director for quite some time. And uh, I I thought he'd make for a fascinating conversation. So thank you guys for uh, helping explore and uh, bringing uh, bringing Ford here to the Directors Club. Now, what was your, Brad, what was your gateway, Ford? Well, it was The Searchers. That wonderful film led me to Stagecoach and My Darling Clementine, started with the Westerns, and then moved on to many other genres he's been working in from wars to romances. Yeah, sometimes you get this great opportunity that every movie you see out of a director that you hadn't seen before shows you, oh my God, there's so much more that this director was doing. And that that was definitely the case for me, looking at the, more, uh, the early Ford, especially the super early ones. And I think one of the beauties of the Director's Club format is that You know, John Ford is an idol. He's a myth. And going through his filmography like this lets you find your own way into that mythology and find out what it means to you. And you really 
you know, th- that's really what film is in a lot of ways, is finding your way into these personal stories. And, you know, we have such a great opportunity today to do that. This conversation is going to go just about all the way back uh, to the beginning of uh, film itself. He was such an early influence that uh, no less a figure than Orson Welles, when he was asked who his uh, favorite director was, he said, I like the old masters, by which I mean John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. (laughs) And Akira Kurosawa, when he was asked who he studied to become a filmmaker, he said he studied John Ford. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a guy who has not just a master, but has influenced masters, who has the only director to have ever won four Academy Awards. Having said that, we are going to be doing John Ford a great injustice here because we only have two episodes to cover him, and he's directed over 140 films starting in 1917. So we're doing the first 70 today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we're not just skipping some incidental stuff. We're we're going to be skipping some films that are considered classics just because we want to get to as many phases of Ford's career as possible, try to see where he was coming from in different directions. But you could have an alternate history of John Ford's films from the ones we're going to discuss. The story actually starts with his older brother, Francis Ford, who was an actor-director in very early silent cinema. Francis gave his brother his start with bit roles in his movies and working behind the scenes and letting him kind of get to know movie making. And then once Francis Ford kind of faded away as a force and John Ford took over, you'll see that Francis Ford has little cameo roles in almost all the films uh, we'll be talking about today. When you think about John Ford in the beginning of film, he was in uh, what many consider to be the first major feature film, uh, Birth of a Nation, as an actor in uh, 1915. He had a bit role as a Klansman. Oh, wow. A very inauspicious debut. No, but it got auspicious pretty quick. uh, (laughs) Because... (laughs) So as we start to look at the films, there are these three things that I've found are kind of constants throughout his movies. I think it'll be interesting to look at how the films fall in in these three categories. Uh, one is, is something called mise-en-scene, which is a term I hate to use because it's a snooty uh, French film school term that John Ford himself would have hated (laughs) to use, but it it so applies here. It basically means everything that's in the frame, from the lighting to the framing itself to the location. Everything you see on the movie screen is the mise-en-scene, and I have rarely, if ever, seen a director more of a master at this. This is something where people today pick up on like the works of Paul Thomas Anderson or Christopher Nolan, which is a film pleasure all its own, is when you're watching something and you know 
for a fact that every single section of the, what you are looking at is there because it's the because it was put there deliberately. That's apart from the story and apart from what the image might mean, but just the fact it's composed so well gives its own reward, right? If there's one constant, I completely agree with you on that one constant that I've seen from these films that we've managed to watch before. It's just, that is so present. <laughs> and even from this earlier films that he's made. To me, I mean, I can't speak to film history necessarily, but I've, I think it's fair to call him a compositional genius. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. And as you said, throughout virtually every film I watched for this, looked beautiful with different cinematographers, different collaborators. The one constant was that he knew how to shoot film. He doesn't move the camera a whole lot, but the compositions are just stunning. For sure. And as great as he is at every other aspect of filmmaking, I think we all agree this is the one that is the biggest takeaway. Then you have kind of really his auteur footprint in that he is one of the most personal filmmakers that I've come across. He is constantly inserting his own interests into the films, whether it be utilizing uh, a regular stable of actors that he just enjoys working with and will put in his films again and again, or his Irish heritage will almost always, if the film isn't set in Ireland, have an Irish character here or there, or a character talking about his Irish roots. Family is a huge theme for John Ford, who famously had a very rocky marriage himself, but he's fam his families are so idealized, with mothers in particular being types of characters that Ford admires. And then there's drinking, which was a Ford hobby and something he includes in quite a bit of his films. This personal stuff kind of works for better or for worse because a lot of people are put off by some of the low comedy that he inserts. It's just something he does, no matter what kind of movie he's doing. You might be dealing with some really serious themes, and he'll throw in some uh, goofy slapstick here and there. It's just something he personally enjoys. I see. Hmm. And we'll take a look at whether we personally enjoy it as we go through these different films. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'd add a little sub-angle to your third theme of his in that he gets to define people's character through the kind of basic pleasures that people do. Mm -hmm. Drinking obviously counts as one, but I think he's also done marvelously by showing uh, dancing in various forms. People's reluctance to dance, and when they finally do dance, that uh, it's almost always really effective, I found, in, in these films. And in the same way, fighting. Fighting, <laughs> fighting defines so many uh, interactions in interesting ways throughout his movies. Yeah, there, there's a certain casualness that he allows. He lets things take their time. He'll uh, leave the plot to just kind of observe life, which is ironic because apparently there are a few places more tense than a John Ford set 
Because he was famous for being quite the ornery fellow, the bully on the set. He, he's one of those guys who I'm happy to enjoy his films, but I don't necessarily feel like I missed out by not being getting to be around him <laughs> from what I've heard. Because, you know, as you said, he on occasion was a bully. He was a blackout drunk a lot of times. He actually, I think early in his career... Uh, was on the verge of losing his career due to alcoholism. So he had a lot of struggles. Apparently, he was generally able to keep, to not drink during shooting, but then he'd uh, take his time in between films to really make up for that. It's pretty amazing hearing about all the strife on the set, that he has uh, produced some of, I would say, movies' most touching examples of pure sentiment uh, that have graced on a movie screen. Yeah, and I think that that fits in with kind of his own personal tastes and maybe being such a gruff guy is a cover for certainly something going on internally, the heart of an artist, which he would again hate to hear, but you watch his films and it's hard not to see that. Even when he's being interviewed, if you ever talked like that around him, he'd just shut down and be like, I make westerns. I would love to see how many ascots he ripped off Peter Bogdanovich's <laughs> chest during his right. uh, 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 several interviews with him. <laughs> and there's a, a third kind of overarching theme that I want to talk about, which is his sense of the history of the nation. His films cover a lot of American history from the Civil War to the, the, the Westerns in the 1800s to World War I, World War II. And he feels very strongly about being an American, even if it is about the uh, immigrant experience of being from an Irish family in America. And if you look at his films... As a whole, he, he's almost painting a portrait of the country. Now, it's not history, it's myth, because as we know, the Western tropes were not accurate. They were something made up for show business. But Ford, more than anybody in film, popularized these myths and looked at American history through his own unique lens. And it was a complicated lens because he was very much a liberal. He was politically active for progressive causes, and some of his films show a affinity for the working class. And when it comes to issues of race, it gets very complex because working in the early part of the 20th century. There's no doubt that you're going to see stuff in his films that are racist. But as we move on with Ford's career, he starts to struggle with that issue. I'd really encourage everybody, uh, more so than for most directors we do two parts on, to join us again for our part two episode, because what he's going, what we're going to do here in part one is see how he establishes this American myth, but then in part two, we're going to see him question and deconstruct it. That's really interesting, because I also feel that a lot of the movies that we're going to talk about in part one just define 
genres that he twists and turns in the second half of his career, but in this first half, he helps establish, I think, two or three. <laughs> For sure. And we are going to start out, as I said, we're, we're going to be doing some injustice by what we're skipping, but no more than with the films he made in the silent era. Many of those films have been lost to history, but he made a, a whole series of very early westerns with a regular actor he worked with named uh, Harry Carey. No relation. <laughs> and one, one of those, if folks are interested, is an extra on the Stagecoach Blu-ray, which is called Bucking Broadway. So if you want to get a taste of what those were, what's one of the few surviving films of that time period. Right. But we're going to distill the silent period to one film, although I do want to mention a couple films that are very acclaimed that he did in that era. One called Three Bad Men, another called Four Sons. But we are going to talk about The Iron Horse. is The Iron Horse is Ford's epic about the vision and building of the Transcontinental Railroad as seen through the eyes of Davy, whose father was killed exploring potential train routes by a two-fingered white man posing as a Cheyenne Indian. Reunited with his childhood sweetheart, he hopes to rediscover that hidden path though others have a greater interest in his failure. Well, one of the things that distinguishes this film is its scope. This was Fox's big effort to create a giant epic Western. Westerns were very popular in the silent era, but a lot of them were kind of done on the cheap. And this one pulled no punches. You've got all these scenes of these wonderful locomotives being built and speeding along, and you have Indian attacks and shootouts, the epic scenery of the West being allowed to come through fruition through the construction of these railroads. I don't know if this was the first movie to do it, but one of the thing, particular enjoyments I got out of seeing this film is that it's both a Western in the standard sense of the Indian attacks and, uh, and romances and so on, but it's also a great procedural of just one of the most marvelous engineering feats the country had experienced up to that point of how do you go and build a transcontinental railroad? And so much of this movie, which is about two and a half hours in length, is so cool at showing all the different logistical things that were involved in getting this built. Just how people lay the tracks, how they would build an entire town around the general area where the railroad's being built. And then when that area of part of the railroad is done, Ford does a great job of just showing how everything disassembles and it becomes like a ghost town in a matter of moments. 
and all the taverns and brothels just all make announcement. They're going to be moving down a couple miles down the pike for the next part of the railroad. I, it's This is a wealth of getting all these details that I really enjoy. Yeah, the, the real treasure to me of this film is its visuals and the fact that it was shot on location, and those locations are stunning. There's so many beautiful shots in this film, and one of the my favorites, actually, Al, is what you mentioned, is when they do move the town, is Ford will set his camera up on the open like flatbed train cars yes. and you see people gambling i mean i think there's a scene where someone gets married yes, while they're there's, going a whole, down the, there's a whole concert going on in one yeah. of the kinds of a piano and a violin i believe yeah it's, it's amazing so you have all this stuff going on in the foreground with all the you know the location uh scenery on location scenery and back and it's it's really something to behold especially in this age of you know cgi where and in this era, you know, you would have something like a set with rear projection. Mm-hmm. You don't feel any of that here. There's a super fun detail that, at least the version that I saw, has these great intertitles, which have scenes that are, like, um, drawn in on the black and white descriptions and, and dialogue. And one of the, near the end, there's one that says, ah, the two trains meet at a center point. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually says in the bottom part, these are the actual trains that made that journey in real life. So I just love the idea that I finally saw a silent movie title with its own footnote. <laughs> well, and, and what's funny about that footnote is those aren't the trains in reality. <laughs> like totally made up. <laughs> like it's a, print, print the legend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Printed the intertitle yeah. legend. Yeah. You know, speaking of legends, this uh, it starts out with... Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. who, of course, as, as one would expect, Ford has a great reverence for, but he's used as a character early on. They're in uh, Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln was from, and these two kids, a boy and a girl, are clearly like each other. One is going to grow up to be one of the people who explores uh, railroad routes, and... Lincoln himself kind of joins their hands together and blesses their union for when they grow up. So you see Lincoln not only portrayed as the driving force of the Intercontinental Railroad, but as the spiritual godfather of our characters themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious seeing the great emancipator as the great matchmaker. <laughs> There's a moment where the female part of that relationship was telling Lincoln that she's marrying this uh, financier instead, and you have the 16th president just roll his eyes and go, oh, come on, what am I going to do with this girl? <laughs> yeah, I-, I think one of the the Americana corniness of this film like establishes a new high. I mean, it is through the roof. And that's one of the frustrating things about it. It's so interested in making Lincoln a legend, you know, making the the building of the railroad a legend that it, and over the course of two and a half hours, that gets a bit grating. You know, it's just so over the top that it was tough. Yeah. The, there's two parts to this film. You do have, kind of this very standard love triangle situation silent movie dramas get pretty melodramatic for the most part but for me all is forgiven once it moves into action mode the visual dynamics here 
are wonderfully used. It uh, reminded me a little bit of Birth of a Nation in its cross-cutting, in the way it builds the suspense. You've got all this cross-cutting between the Indian attacks and the people building the railroad to see if they're going to be able to meet and make this happen. And as the film goes on to a climax, it just becomes so dynamic. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's and I totally agree. I guess just for me, it's the balance is off, right? Like it, it, it has those scenes you're talking about, but too often it gets stuck in these comic bits that don't work really well and drag on for it seems like ten minutes at a time. And you know, you just keep you keep waiting for them to get back to okay, get back to the rail, get back to the outdoor shooting. You know, and the script wasn't finished from what I understand, and they were improvising a lot. And you feel that, like you feel like they don't quite know where to go with it. There's a lot of good in this movie. There's a lot to recommend, but you're gonna have to eat your vegetables along along with the meal oh, so here. You, so you guys are saying you're not fans of that bearded saloon owner who <laughs> points the shotgun and goes, "All right." We're turning this drinking place out to the judging place, and everyone sets up the, 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 uh, uh, their impromptu trial. That not, not a fan of that? I am a fan of that, actually. I, I kind of don't. I'm also a fan of the constant bickering between the Irish uh, railroad workers and the Italian railroad workers. Uh, one of the, I think, you know, from a modern eye, the inner title cards, like, managed to insult almost every ethnic group in the, in the movie, you know, with Italians, it's spelled out E-Y-E, you know. Right, yeah, you can't hear the accent, so you have to see them written out. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, it is kind of jarring. I mean, not, it, it didn't offend me, it was just more, like, funny and a relic of, you know, time capsule sort of way. I thought it was interesting that the villain infiltrates an Indian tribe impersonates Indians as he's doing his villainy at this point and including in this movie there's no humanization of Native Americans we're not yet at that point in film but I did think it was an interesting touch to note that the most vicious act that is allegedly perpetrated by the Indians is actually perpetrated by a white man that's also very interesting in context to what how what I really enjoy about the last moment of the movie, which is doesn't have any dialogue and is just an increasing sense of majesty at this American accomplishment of building the railroad. While this final spike is being driven, they're all exchanging and showing what's cool, what they found along the way, and our hero meets his old buddy on the other side, and they were literally started from both ends of the country to finally get this uh, reunion, and it's a fun reflection of the upcoming marriage in the sense of two sides um, coming together, and I think ends very nicely on this scene of like all these different people, all these different walks of life, and they're all facing the photograph that's being taken of this historic moment. The movie does take pains to show you all the different ethnic groups involved and all the, everything they contributed. I guess the problem I have is the next step it takes when it wants to pat itself on the back as a country for having that. It wants to congratulate itself without acknowledging all the ugliness that came along with that and would go along with that. This is a proto populist blockbuster sort of film and it's uh, that may be asking too much for it but it, it's just the volume was turned up so high on that that mm-hmm. i couldn't get past it i think you're actually on one of the 
things floating in through Ford's work is, as Brad said, and as Ford said in his film, like when you print the legend, how much dedication do you have to the authentic facts versus buying into the sentiment and inspiring people that way? Well, if we're looking for something a little more understated, we're going to get that. As we move forward to our next movie, this is a hidden gem called Pilgrimage. So for this film, I want to give an overall spoiler warning before I even start the description. Not really because of any twists, but more because I had a wonderful experience when watching it in that I didn't know where it was going. And so if you want to come into this fresh, then you can uh, skip to the next movie. But be warned, we're now going to discuss the plot in full. Pilgrimage was released in 1933 and is the story of Hannah Jessup, a mother so controlling of her only son that she would rather see him drafted into World War I than marry a woman she views as lower class. When her son is killed in battle, she joins a ship of gold star mothers off to France and discovers some deeper truths about herself on this pilgrimage. Yeah, I totally second you, uh, Brad, on this film. I I had never heard of it before, and it knocked me out. Uh, I thought it was constantly surprising. It was fast-paced. It was a surprisingly sophisticated character study going into repression and guilt. Mm -hmm. Um, The lead performance uh, by Henrietta Crossman blew me away. I had never heard her name before this film. Apparently she was a primarily a stage actress, but her performance in this film as, you know, the manipulative, controlling, and ultimately grieving mother uh, is really something everyone should see. I mean, it really blew me away. Yes, it starts out um, with her as kind of an antagonist, and you see uh, her son wanting to start this uh, romance uh, with the the neighbor girl whose father is a drunk. And she is like this monstrosity forbidding him to do this, that, and, and, and basically wanting to keep him on the farm to take care of her in her old age. And you can really see a movie, you know, that kind of sticks to this subject, but then this shift of her actually signing her son up for the draft once he uh, refuses to obey her takes it to this level of, well, what is with this character? And he's killed. We see literally like a minute of World War I before he's killed. And then she struggles, but she doesn't struggle in the obvious way because she still is blaming her son and doesn't 
yet understand her own culpability in what's happened. Yeah, and her pilgrimage is not only the physical one across the ocean to see her son's gravesite where he's been buried, but it's her emotional one of coming to terms with that and learning to love the people around her and give of herself without being controlling and going through all those stages of grief and finally coming out a better person on the other side. And you see that all in in, in Crossman's uh, performance. Just to get back to one other thing you said, Brad, along the way, there are really jarring tonal shifts in this movie where you'll go from the deepest grief to like these comedic scenes of that are actually pretty good there's a there's a bit where she's getting on to about to get on the boat to cross the ocean and they have their passport photos and it just is the goofiest passport photo you've ever seen and, <laughs> and she's sitting there and she's like you know she's like oh my god look what they did to my and they they cut to it and it's just i laughed out loud at it i mean he it was, invented the driver's license photo flash <laughs> passport photo mistake we, huh? we we would not we would not have mclovin if we did this movie <laughs> so you know yeah, nice. This, the the comic bits on the sh- on the ship are are wonderful. Yeah. There's a lot of fish out of water stuff because she's basically this country rube who is now meeting city folk for the first time. They they pass uh, New York on the way out, and she's kind of looks at them. I'm not impressed. Yeah, <laughs> but you have all these gold star mothers. Everyone has has lost somebody, but their grief is a different kind of grief because they don't have this extra layer of of culpability. And then in another shift, when they arrive in France, she meets this other couple. First, she meets uh, the guy part of the couple who is looking over a bridge uh, as if he's George Bailey in A Wonderful Life, and she's thinking he might jump. When she meets him and his girlfriend and his mother, played by famous gossip columnist at the time, Hedda Hopper, uh, (laughs) is basically repeating the mistake she made, but because she's seeing this now play out in another family, she realizes what she's done, and she starts to relate more to her grandson, who she'd been estranged from because he was born out of wedlock. So it's not even just a legend as much as it's kind of a intercontinental fable. To give credit while it's due here, the screenwriter is uh, Dudley Nichols, who I found throughout the films we're going to look at, I really appreciated his work. And he's someone who builds in visual metaphors and the title is obviously, you know, works on multiple levels. And I think what it is, it's really like a character study of assessing your own role and accepting yourself and being given the grace to have a second chance at something. Like she, she essentially did kill her son. She didn't make him sign up in that. She went and signed him up. She signed his name to the draft and he went because she did that without telling him. She, he's over and, and is killed, and as Brad said, and she carries that guilt with her. And now when she goes to visit his gravesite overseas, she, she meets a young man who's about to commit suicide, as you said, Brad. And, you know, that gives her the opportunity to fix what was done wrong and to help 
this man where she couldn't help her son. And that's all played out so well in the performance that it's really just a treat to watch. It's so well written, so well acted, so well directed. Uh, it, it just all comes together. And I do want to call out the visuals here too because they're beautiful, but beautiful in a different way than a lot of Ford's other films. We talked about directors who were influenced by Ford, but one of Ford's biggest influences was F.W. Murnau. Not so much in the content, but in the look of this film, you see a lot of uh, Murnau's sunrise. Yeah, that was another very pleasant surprise for me as I went through these early films. Is I wasn't expecting to see that German expressionist influence at all. And especially the early parts of this film, which are set on kind of like a rural farm. Mm-hmm. It looks, I mean, just amazing. It really does. Like the lighting, the expressionist style is there in what should be this rural area. And it really pulled me in right away. It was really stunning. Too often, like the idea of German expressionism is used as, well, for, well, nowadays it's a shorthand for almost everything Tim Burton does, right? <laughs> um, but the idea is like dark, twisted buildings and labyrinth uh, alleyways and what have you. And so, yeah, it's pretty fascinating to see it applied to wide open spaces, to really bright spaces, and to uh, Western uh, locations. But that's kind of one of the things I really, really had enjoyed and picked up on Ford, even from the very beginning, was that this is a guy who actually uses emotions and people's perspectives through the very landscape itself. (laughs) I mean, no one, I think, has used such a bigger canvas to go and uh, put people in a certain state of mind, I think, than, um, uh, than John Ford. And it's used in the early part of the film to great effect because it lets you know just how off this relationship is in certain ways and kind of the horror, kind of horrific aspects of it. Mm -hmm. Um, That it's really not there just to be pretty or for show. It actually does contribute to kind of the way you feel about the relationship and feel about the characters. Again, just to to call this one out because a lot of the classics we're going to be talking about are so well known, but this one deserves to be up there too. Yeah, and it, it definitely underscores and one of the themes you mentioned earlier, Brad, too, a family and destruction of family and holding family, trying to hold family together. That's basically what this story is and just beautifully done. But now that we've talked about women, I think we're going to head into uh, an all-male film. Right, and one where the environment can't be more scant or so express the desolation of the characters and their situation in 1934's The Lost Patrol. This is a film about a British mounted patrol during World War I as they transverse the deserts of Mesopotamia. When one soldier who knows they're out back to their unit is killed, the patrol finds itself lost and exposed to the dangers of the desert environment and unseen Arab enemies as well as panic and dissension in their own ranks. 
I have to admit that when I see this movie, I'm just incredibly blown away by multiple reasons. Because one of the reasons is because John Ford is known for like a director who does these big expansive things, right? Like how we were just describing about the wide open landscapes and the epic nature of the Iron Horse. I was shocked to see that this is a minimalist film. Basically it has one location and the threat is mostly unseen. And yet his directorial skill of making things just seem fascinating and strange and elemental is just flows so much through this picture. That feeling that you guys were describing about the, the expressionism of the environment showing the mo emotions of the characters is done to such a pure effect, I found, in, in, the, in the Desert Patrol. The effect, to me, reminds me of, this is a bit of a reach, but bear with me, of what like Stephen King did in his first book of the, of the Gunslinger saga, The Gunslinger. He had to make a shortened story because it was a set of articles for Playboy magazine. But by shortening it and only be, not being able to use 90% of the words he's used to using in so many of his stories, by picking the right words and using them the right way, that first book is so expansive and leads your imagination to go into think of just this wide, wide world. And that's what the Lost Patrol does for me because whether he's showing like this group on all the different people in the patrol, each with their different motivations, each with their different crises, to just seeing like how the zigzag lines of their descent through this desert dune, he just brings out this feeling of desolation, isolation, and dissolution of everyone's ideals in cinema form. <laughs> right, we're so used to him showing us the American landscape. Yeah. But now getting to see these these dunes, this uh, even more desolate landscape, which he films, possibly the best I've seen of these kind of deserts uh, up until Lawrence of Arabia. The desert really does fit in with the psychology of the patrol. And even the fact that they think they're seeing uh, mirages. And yes. as they go a longer time isolated and start to crack up under pressure. You see that visually first in the naked desert itself, but then once they do find an oasis, which you think will provide some kind of relief, that oasis actually isolates them further because now they find they can live in this one small area but they can never get out of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. What Michelangelo Antonioni did with La Ventura, I feel Ford did with this film. Just showing this kind of existential despair in the face of all sorts of different ways of thinking of, like, escaping. And it also has that kind of um, Buñuel sense of people in an environment which looks tantalizing and Edenic, but they can never ever leave yeah it's very interesting because this is very much like a it was based on a play and it has one location 
primarily, and it's not really there's not really anything done to open it up. So for a majority of the film, you're here in this one place with this group of people, and it's primarily about how do they, how do they relate to each other and where does meaning come between these men who are in this horrible situation? Mm-hmm. Just, just to be clear, like they're a, a patrol in Mesopotamia during World War One, they're lost and they're pinned down in this location by a sniper or snipers. And they can't get out because the minute anyone steps out or tries to leave or even looks out to try to locate where the snipers are, they're shot almost immediately. It is a brilliant move to just have the threat be unseen. Someone just steps out and they fall down. There's no way you could get the same, or you couldn't feel the same threat the men do if you saw where these folks were. Right. Because you don't know what's coming next or where it's coming from. And then that leaves you with, this relationship between these men and trying to figure out what do they mean to each other? How are they going to react to the situation? What meaning can they find in it? Is there any meaning to find? Yes. And we get to know them and their different personalities. Uh, We should talk about the casting, particularly in what must have been one of his earliest non-horror roles, Boris Karloff, as a very religious soldier who is constantly preaching the gospels to his fellow soldiers and explaining to them how their sin is part of the reason they're in this mess. Carlos being very broad here, but it's still interesting to see him in such a different kind of role than his universal monsters. Yeah, if I could just jump into a couple of things that didn't work for me in this film. One of them is just the setup for the plot. The reason they're lost is so asinine to me like essentially the leader of the patrol at one point pulls his second command aside and says oh you know what i don't know where we are also i don't have our orders and that guy who was just (laughs) shot and we buried he had the orders (laughs) so uh not not exactly stellar leadership there by our by our lead no And, and then the other thing which doesn't work is boris Karloff's performance i don't know what movie he thought he was in but it wasn't this one He's chewing desert scenery and he runs out of sand to chew on. It's just that big a performance. (laughs) Oh, my. It's such a shame because almost every other actor is on such a similar page despite their different approaches. There's even two Irish characters who pine for their home country. And those are fit with the squad. And then whenever they cut to Karloff, you get a performance that I would only describe as... Hmm, what if the mummy joined the army? How what how would he behave? And he found religion. <laughs> Every movement of his is uh comes across as he's auditioning for being Count Chocula. <laughs> well he, he is auditioning and it doesn't really work out because he may have bit off more than he can chew, desert or otherwise, but he does seem to want to break out of the typecasting that he would have been in at this time. But unfortunately for him, right after this, and probably because he didn't really acquit himself well here, he is back to his uh, standard horror role. And it's a real mm-hmm. shame because I think his, I think you nailed it, Brad. I, I think his aim in this performance is to benefit Boris Karloff's career, not the film necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because the way this film 
addresses and considers religion is very interesting. In my mind, it almost set out to disprove that there are no atheists in foxholes because there are atheists in this foxhole. And it's very interesting about how some characters get all the meaning from religion to live on and some others can't even consider it. It it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, there's a really, really wonderful speech by Reginald Denny playing George Brown And it is simultaneously a precursor to Kevin Costner's What Do You Believe In in Bull Durham and a refutation of this kind of fundamentalist belief in religion that Karloff's character is touting. And it's just amazing to behold. It's a great speech in and of itself, Mm -hmm. but in that context, it's really bracing to see in this kind of world that they find themselves trapped in what approach do you do? And I mean, it's just amazing how in different ways they fall short. And for me, the incredible inadequacy of the captain of the of would, or would be leader becomes an asset because by the end of the movie, there's somebody who is clearly looking up to him and looking for him for guidance. And I think part of the reason that the, he's so inadequate is to show that even guidance from your leader is not going to arrive. And in that sense, the ultimate survivor is maybe the ultimate repudiation. Really, to me, it might take away from this film in terms of how it viewed religion, that it was almost either unnecessary or delusional to, ha- to have it. Like, I mean, the man who is the most religious and who leans on his faith the most loses his mind. And look at the last image that you see of him, too. Yep. That's one hell of an astounding... I was amazed that this movie actually got to see the light of day, frankly, with an image like that. Well, this is a dark movie, and to give the overall effect, we have to go to some spoilers here for the end, which is, I think you you expect in a movie like this that some of your characters will be killed, but what was more surprising is that every member of the patrol but one is killed. Yeah. And... That really kind of brings the war is hell vision here to another level. Yeah. Because they're not just doing a standard good time adventure film here. Yes. They are using these psychological issues to go to the darkest places. That's so true. And there's a moment at the near the end, which without spoiling things, is very evocative of another movie that had a great ending that came out recently, uh, Hell or High Water. It's a result from like a character who feels, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And he even has that denied him. Hmm. Oh my God. And it also has, in the opposite of Nobody's Perfect from Some Like It Hot, there's a line that's said at the very end, which in context, when you see over the whole course of that movie could not be more dark and yet very thoughtful at the same time. Yeah, and as we're talking about all, you know, how good the writing is in this movie, I just want to mention Dudley Nichols again. He's the screenwriter here. And I think he turned out to be kind of the secret MVP of this series of films for me. The films he wrote, I think I like quite a bit out of the batch. Yeah. And I may seek out other things he wrote after this. Like I really was thought the quality of work here was cool. consistent and very high level. Yeah, and, and apart from just the purity of the message and how well it was delivered on a screenplay and structural point. I just want to also add one other thing that just 
blew me away about this film and made me so happy that we got a chance to look at this hidden gen. And what I would recommend for you guys listening is that that quality, Peter, that you said about John Ford, how he is a compositional genius, I think this is one of the showcase movies that shows this to great effect in this very limited environment, which consists of this oasis and a, and a mosque nearby that's been partly desolated or destroyed. He manages to do so much, defining different settings, different environments, different angles, different uses of light and shadow, and it all means something. Where one person's in the mosque, where one person's in the trees, how the branches are moving across the shadows of graves from the different soldiers who couldn't make it. Every one of this just fits in for the characters, fits the mood. And as a great example of how a director's intent can go and bring out so much out of a movie from the most limited of environments. So one of the things that happens as we jump around in Ford's career is we're going to have some very sharp turns. And this is one of them, because you can't find a more different film from the last one than that same year's Judge Priest which is one of three Ford vehicles that was starring Will Rogers. Here he plays a small-town Kentucky judge during Reconstruction who spends his time playing Cupid for his nephew and a neighbor girl. After the town outcast gets into a fight, class issues, family revelations, and nostalgia for the old Confederacy are all brought to fore in this down-home country comedy. Here's my thoughtful take on Judge Priest. Fuck this movie. (laughs) Seriously. This was a very frustrating watch for me. So as you mentioned, Brad, it's set in, um, you know, the South. And it's basically an exercise in fondness for the Confederate era. There's a lot of, it's not even casual racism (laughs) in this movie. It's appropriate for the time period and overt in its actions. But it's just something that's frustrating to watch today. Particularly because our lead, Will Rogers, is, I think, intended to be a progressive sort of character. He spends time with African-American characters in this film. He has um, an African-American maid who lives with him. And I think the idea is, is that he's a good person because he has these people in his life. But, man, the, these characters, one is uh, Halsey, played by Hattie McDaniel, who sings a lot throughout the movie, which is some of the most racist lyrics to these songs um, about how she's so happy to be doing the master's laundry and all this sort of stuff. And then uh, his friend Jeff played by, uh, his stage name was Step and Fetch It. His given name was Lincoln Perry. So you have this scenario of celebrating kind of legacy of the Confederacy. 
And okay, maybe if this movie had other things going for it, you, you could overlook that or forgive it a little bit. But the main <coughs> plot here is hackneyed to death. It's a very lame romantic comedy with a twist that's telegraphed a mile away. It's not particularly funny. There's no real great directorial touches to it. My man Dudley Nichols wrote this, unfortunately. <laughs> and essentially what you have is a kind of mediocre movie dragged down by a, a racist setting. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot to recommend here. Mm, I don't know how fair it is to go and judge a movie which is basing itself on racial attitudes from 1934. I get your point. I think in this specific instance, it feels fair to me because the film wants you to credit its lead for being, like we said, enlightened or progressive. And if that goal is there, yet the reality that the film presents is that that those characters are still just stereotypes, then we can't give him credit for just being around stereotypical presentations of African-Americans. And particularly galling to me is through plot contrivance, the film essentially ends with the Jeff character played by Lincoln Perry agreeing to perform the Confederacy anthem Dixie so he can be given a fur coat he likes. It's just so galling that our hero is here giving this man who's ostensibly his friend, uh, you know, tempting him with a fur coat because, hey, that's all African-Americans will do. They'll sell themselves out for a fur coat. You can't have those two things, like where you want to celebrate your protagonist for who he is and then have him commit an act like that and have it wash. It just doesn't work. Hmm. My perspective on it is that the context is also important and can help in going like taking a look at like a film such as this and just trying to find value from or what it was trying to do and especially in the era of, of which it's made. To be sure, any 10 seconds of Stephen Fetchett's performance, if it was to air out of context on Twitter, would cause that to melt down. And I definitely understand why that behavior it just comes across as a red flag today. But that leads me to go and think, and maybe I just had the luxury of thinking this, is like, well, why did John Ford make this movie? Why did he make it this way? I mean, he's certainly aware that the South lost the war between the states. And the fact that he has the African-American person do Dixie is so perverse it's so piling on that it actually makes me loop around to just go, is John Ford making a really strange kind of point by, in the, by make, doing being Jewish priest this way? Well, the, this is the complexity of John Ford and, and the race issue. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this movie, because he has these progressive instincts that in 1934 are still hopelessly mired in a racist culture. The other interesting thing about this, as far as how it deals with the race issue, is that this movie was remade in the 50s as what I think is one of Ford's best films and most complex views of Reconstruction, the Confederacy, 
and race issues, a film called The Sun Shines Bright, which we will talk about in part two. And and when we do, I think it'll be interesting to contrast its more complicated view of this to the simple way it's treated in this project. I'll really look forward to that then, because I do think if there's a way that we can in a sense, chart growth from maybe this starting point to the film you're talking about we're going to see later, Brad, then that'll be an interesting comparison because I think for me, like here, I just, there wasn't much for me to pull out of this. So if we can kind of retroactively assign something to it, that would be great. Right. And and also, I I don't think it's a very good film regardless. Uh, It's in a period where John Ford was doing more comedies, he did two other films with Will Rogers, one called Dr. Bull and the other called Steamboat Round the Bend. And it should be noted that Will Rogers was a gigantic figure of American culture at this time. And during the period he was making movies in the 30s was a huge movie star. Yeah, he was like, the in a way, kind of like how Steve Martin was treated in the 70s and 80s. And that, like, selling out or how Steve Martin was selling out arenas, doing his comedy, and then appearing on Saturday Night Live and on movies. Will Rogers was that kind of comic presence. He was also, but he, maybe even to a higher level, and that he was just a, thought of as a very brilliant political wit. Right, his quotes are rightly famous. But when you actually see him on film, it's it's a little jarring today because, because frankly, it all comes off very Mayberry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is the first film I've ever seen with Will Rogers. It might be the last film I ever <laughs> see with Will Rogers because he comes across to me as um, a bit of a cross between Jerry Van Dyke trying to imitate Robin Williams with a little bit of W.C. Fields uh, rolling in. He's just, so much of his witticisms are just he muttered under his breath and he kind of mumbles his way through through this and that. Like, like there's one point where he comes into a barber shop and he espies a guy in, in the barbershop chair who has a really long beard and he just says, oh, I haven't been here in a while, have you? This is that kind of humor. Kind of pervades, and there's some there there's some jokes that hit like uh, mm-hmm. the guy in the court uh, who's constantly spitting his tobacco uh, well, at inopportune right. well, moments. Well, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I, like I was speaking of like Will Rogers as a comic. Oh, as him pers- himself. Yes, yeah. pers- perspectively. I don't if to see him mumble his way through like interactions by trying to set up his neighbor or how he handles the trial or how he uh, interacts with uh, the Stephen Fetchett's character, you would never know. I don't see how you would ever know about the legendary comedy and wit that this guy has been put on display. Now, that guy spitting, on the other hand, he may be the highlight of the movie <laughs> because he's a, it's a continuing motif, and he does some uh, really fun bits where he keeps impressing more and more of the courtroom with his spit ability, uh, including one moment where he just waves his arm to go, see, made it curve just so to get there, get around this guy. <laughs> Pre- precursor to the magic loogie, I guess, of <laughs> Seinfeld fame. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I guess if I, if I, I'll say, just to say something good about this film, I think 
uh, Will Rogers is good in. In addition to the humor you mentioned, he has a nice kind of melancholy understatedness to him mm-hmm. and, and like a weary wisdom that I thought he conveyed very well. So he does kind of play both sides of that coin pretty well. It's just in service of a really lame story. <laughs> and just to show kind of what a weird period in John Ford's career we're in, this is also around the time he actually helmed a uh, Shirley Temple vehicle called Wee Willy Winky. <laughs> mm, how racist was that one? Haven't seen it, can't tell you. <laughs> but we move on to now a film uh, that he's far more well known for. And yet manages to be something that flies a little under the radar for people who only know from John Ford from his classics. I know I had not heard until this uh, podcast of his 1935 film, The Informer. God loves a drunk. Though he's a clown Oh, you can't help but laugh As he gags and falls down But it don't give a cuss For what people think of He screams at his demons Alone in the darkness He's staying alive for just Won't you throw him a few pennies, friend? This stars Ford regular Victor McLaughlin as Jippu Nolan, a Dublin IRA soldier so desperate for a 20-pound reward that he turns in his good friend to the police. As IRA operatives search for this informer, uh, Jippo struggles to keep his secret, while the temptations of alcohol and the Dublin nightlife surround him. Well, Victor McLaughlin won an Oscar for this role, and how you feel about this movie may depend upon how you react to his performance, because it raised in my mind uh, two questions. One is, can a protagonist be too stupid to root for? (laughs) And two, is this possibly the drunkest anyone has ever been on film? (laughs) I know you guys are down on him, and I'm going to be over here polishing his Oscar form, I think, because I really really enjoyed his performance. It is... I'm surprised he didn't drink his Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think he's pouring champagne over it into, you know, down the the champagne waterfall as we... But no, I, I thought, I mean, it's undeniably big and undeniably drunk, but so emotionally impactful that, like, it really registered with me. And, and impactful, impactful, because there's a lot of <laughs> uh, big fight scenes about his showing his superheroic invulnerability. <laughs> well, yes, he, he's a big, tough man, drunk or sober. But there is emotional resonance here. I think in the end, it's a very good film, but McLaughlin takes a lot of getting used to, but you still can't help but feel for the guy a little, even though he's done this uh, awful thing of turning in his friend, because there is somewhat of an innocence there. He thinks he has a plan, but he can't really 
get to that next level of, of, of following up on this plan. So the minute he has any money, he's taken advantage of by every street urchin, by every partier in the uh, low life of Dublin, as he's taken from bar to bar and finds that the money he's going to use for him and his girl to get to America is very quickly being depleted. All the while, we're watching the other side of things, which is the IRA uh, itself hunting for this guy who they view as quite the threat. He's already in hot water with his superiors because he wouldn't kill a man on order before the events of the film started. So you have this combination of McLaughlin's gigantic drunk fest along with a very tense manhunt. And to me, like, <laughs> I think what really registered for me, we taught when we talked about pil- pilgrimage earlier, we talked about how it was about repressed guilt in a lot of ways. And I think here what registers with me is that this big showboaty performance is ultimately a mask for the guilt he's carrying for having betrayed his friend. And the every drink he has is just still trying to quiet that voice inside him that tells him or reminds him this is what you did you sold your friend out for yourself and that that's blood money essentially that he's walking around with and you know we we also talked earlier about how the german expressionism was a a favorite of ford's and here we see that to the nth degree like this is a very much expressionistic film everything is going to that repressed state of mind for our lead he can't you know, he can't deal with those feelings. This movie is shrouded in fog. He He's essentially a simple man who's forced to reckon with a very complex decision, and he can't do it. It's a cruel world for a simple man who can't make his way in it, and it's re- I found it truly moving, and that is expressed visually here as well. It brought to my mind two films, uh, one that came before it and one came after it. I think there were echoes of M., the great Fritz Lang German film, and and also later on, Odd Man Out, about Mm -hmm. an IRA soldier on the run. And for anything else you might have to say about this, it's it's a visually stunning work. It looks like the noiriest of noir films. Yeah, and and, uh, my my man, Dudley Nichols, wrote the script again. He's back. (laughs) He won the Oscar for his screenplay. Um, You know, a lot... So we have three Oscar awards here, Best Director for Ford, Best Actor for McLaughlin, and Best Screenplay for Nichols. And I really think that tells you kind of how this film is working on all the levels I mentioned, that the script gets at that repressed guilt, the the visuals that Ford gives you get to that, and the performance, whether or not <laughs> you like it, gives. there's a lot there for the performance. This is the Irish Medea movie, okay? <laughs> we have one of these stories stupidest people ever put on screen doing moronically idiotic things and the absolute only way this guy hasn't choked on his own tongue is because the other people are just as dumb as he is. There is a scene in M where where this guy is being called to judgment by a shadowy underworld, but this is M as if everyone was brain dead because he is obviously guilty and every single moment of that would-be trial shows how he's 
<laughs> completely guilty, and the person that he put as the patsy has is the most proper person of all time, and it, it, it complete cuts to this guy doing everything but eating his own scarf because he's so he's so racked with fear about being found out <laughs> that you that it just is mind blowing to me to go and uh, look at this guy and take anything he does seriously because. He is so damned guilty from the first 10 minutes. Everybody with a, fu a functioning set of eyeballs can see that this guy, that this guy did it. And so every moment from that other point is just puts me in a movie place where I just go, why am I watching this crap? <laughs> well, I, I guess to me, like, it, it, and I don't, I, I mean, I, I think what I hear you're saying I don't, is, is that from a procedural perspective, it's unrealistic. But 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 to <laughs> Thank me you for understating that. Yes. Well, yeah, but I mean, to me, I think you said that it's obvious he's guilty from the moment, and I agree. This movie is about guilt. <laughs> Everything is an extension of his how he sees it, his personality, and what he's feeling, and the fact that the other characters don't necessarily relate to him in a particularly realistic way didn't really bother me because I don't think that's what the, the movie is about his state of mind and his state of emotion and the fact that they don't treat him in a realistic way there's not really much in this movie that is realistic it's an emotional honesty that I appreciate it okay see I can't get past the fact that like if this guy is in fact guilty yet every time he meets the head of the uh, local IRA organization he's nothing but oh hey we're friends we're buddies we're back in the fold and nowhere is there a single like neuron acting like oh wait maybe I'll be found out no, basically every sort of behavior of his like fellow IRA guy who's <laughs> not only is on him from the very beginning, but is very clear that he doesn't like him even if he thought he was innocent, and yet he treats him as a pal. Then you know what the funny thing is, Pete? Is that like the framework which I'm approaching the movie on this way was just ridiculous. I was laughing my head off at the situation that this moron goes in and without being caught. However, the thing is, is if you literally think push things a little too a little farther, there's a kind of an interesting framework where I do think it works a little better, which is this, is that he is stupid, unthinking, unknowing to an animal level. This is the Irish all hazard Baltazar, <laughs> where he is a just a dumb, innocent beast who has one wish to get some sort of a love of a woman and uh, the promise, however fleeting, of going to America. And if you look at it in that sense, that this is a guy who never would have had a chance, then it's interesting about how other people treat him. Because as soon as he has money, all these different parts of Irish society use this as an excuse to exploit him. Well, that's really interesting because I think that second version of the story that you describe is the one that's intended. I think that's exactly where Ford is going with this. And I also agree, it's rough to stay on board when the guy is wandering around screaming his own name at the top of his lungs and people are calling him King Jippo and he's acting in all manner of insane ways. But I do think that where it does work is in that commentary on how he is being taken advantage of in how he is very much helpless in this situation because yeah. the IRA guys 
pretty much do suspect him. I mean, they want to give him every benefit of the doubt because they've known him forever. And not only up until they had the situation where he wouldn't kill the prisoner, up until that point, they were probably friends and were drinking along with him. But knowing what would have to be done if he is the informer, I didn't find it so unrealistic how they didn't want to jump right to the conclusion. Well, and I think also the fact that they keep him in the fold is a way to keep an eye on him too, right? Like they want him to come to this particular meeting where he thinks he's getting his job back. Mm-hmm. And, and a particularly nice note of the film, I think, is that the reason he is out of the organization to start with is that he refused to kill someone. So you're already starting off with someone who, it's not just innocence, it's more someone who's incapable of living in this world that he's forced into. The reality of the situation between the IRA and the British occupation, he's not capable of living in that reality. And the fact that that decision to mm. not hurt someone is what put him in this in the first place and led him to betray his friend, that's a very complex equation for someone as simple as he is to deal with. And that's how this movie hit me. I think that's why this movie hit me so hard. The fact that the IRA eventually does find him guilty. There's a great scene where his girlfriend begs for his life and the head of the IRA weighs all these things about her trying to act on his behalf and he considers them and he knows what it's going to mean to sentence this man to death. But he thinks about that complexity I just talked about and then what's, in his view, duty requires to sentence him to death and he sentences him. That's a really complex thing to be put on film and i thought it was really well done uh the way you describe that brings to mind another work of mice and men Mm -hmm. and it's almost like he's this lenny wandering around with no george in sight Mm -hmm. yeah well well, any potential george's most uh most unfortunately in this little gremlin guy who leads him to this kind of casino brothel environment and then persists in the story, whereas only a guy like Jippo could follow this corrupt midget character. <laughs> Why? Well, there's absolutely nothing appealing about him, and it's so obvious that he's like he literally turns against him the moment he Jippo doesn't have any money, and then when Jippo shows that he does have money, he turns on him on a dime and suddenly loves him and calls him King Jippo again all completely obliviously represented on on Jippo's part. No, but see, but here's the thing. I guess I would read that sort of differently. To me, like, that character is a representation of this kind of brutal society sniffing out someone's weakness and exploiting it. And I think on some level, Jippo wouldn't be able to articulate his guilt, but he feels it. And this movie is all about that feeling, and it's obvious to other people around him who... In this film, the filmmakers see as basically if you show weakness, you're going to be exploited. And that's kind of how this film plays out to me. And there's a simple, weak man who can't articulate his own guilt being exploited for that guilt. Oh, man. Okay. I mean, I'm, I struggle to see that in so many scenes in the movie. When he is getting drunk, when he's fighting people, when he's... Uh, going downstairs and laughing up a storm at like how he's going to be back in the fold. There is not a scintilla of guilt in his performance or in his presentation. He is having a grand old time. He is having the time of his life. 
I don't see it. I don't see this guilt that he has. The only guilt that I see from it is from what you described, Peter, and the, in terms of the environment. That feeling was just so ironically informed by the visuals with the... So often, like, lights are scattered in and just cast, like, the perfect spotlight of interrogation on him. And the, the one moment where I think he starts to feel guilt, he literally uses his back to escape, but you have the shafts of light are just coming in out of this broken part of the roof in a way that finally maybe the lid is coming off his guilt. There I see maybe those feelings, Pete, that you saw through his character and the performance. Like, there I see it from the visuals. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I think this is really interesting because I don't think it's possible. To, I think we see this film entirely differently. Um, yeah. We're different ends of the spectrum. But yeah. uh, to me, and I could see why, look, this film is a lot. <laughs> it's just a lot of everything. It's a lot of performance. It's a lot of expressionistic visuals. And if you get pushed off by it, I could see where you have that reaction. I got sucked in by it. I, you know, I, I think this is now the second film where we've had a great exploration of repressed guilt, pil pilgrimage in this, and mm -hmm. I loved both of them. So, Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to jump in to say this is, a, this is also a very interesting film, though, in the use of, like, special effects. Because some of the things where he's, like, when he's, pi when he's pining for the ocean voyage... It's done in a really great perspective where you see the, the liner in the bottom half and his face in the top half. And when he thinks back to his friend, the wanted poster that he rips down just keeps showing him, showing itself. Mm -hmm. like, a, like That's kind of more of a mirage of his guilt, the, that's what you're saying. The, the ghost poster the is, ghost uh, poster. is nice. everywhere, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's see if moving forward to 1939 can uh, make things a little less controversial because we are heading towards what might be his most acclaimed film of this era stagecoach was john ford's return to the western A diverse array of passengers, including a wanted outlaw, a shamed prostitute, a drunken doctor, a meek whiskey salesman, a southern gentleman, a soldier's wife, and a questionable banker all find themselves passengers on this stagecoach dealing with social and class prejudices, the dangers of Apache attacks, and an old grudge that looms during this fateful stagecoach journey. So perhaps a perfect film? Have we maybe found a perfect film here? I can't find a problem. I think it's a damn masterpiece. Me too. It not only is one of the greatest Westerns ever made, it's one of the great dramas. I listed these various types, and they're all completely humanized. Claire Trevor is so sympathetic as the prostitute. And then you have the great Thomas Mitchell. 
in what may be my favorite performance as a drunk I could more get behind, <laughs> who for me is kind of the heart of the Stagecoach crew and is very sympathetic towards the oppressed characters, but at the same time really wants some of that whiskey. And then there's the mysterious John Carradine character, who wasn't even supposed to be in the stagecoach ride, but seems to be enamored with one of the other women in the stagecoach who he knows is married, but is going to join her to protect her virtue. It's this incredibly complex interactions of social status and performances of all different types that work together perfectly. And finally, when John Wayne, who was not a star until this film, is added into the mix, we have magic. And John Wayne's introduction to the film is unforgettable. He joins the stagecoach midway as the camera zooms in towards him on his horse. And John Ford has made a star instantly. Considering how big those behemoth cameras were, it's a really cool move of his intro, where it zooms as, not zooms as in like the camera move, but zooms as in, they're pushing that camera all the way up so fast that it actually goes out of focus. Yes. Until it resolves focus on this glorious look of just John Wayne's face at its most open and enthusiastic, and maybe it's like most iconic. This film is so perfectly balanced that everyone in it is great. Every single performance, every single actor just does exactly what you would want them to and hits the perfect note. It's really stunning. It's when you stumble on something like this, you almost don't want to pick it apart. You're like, it just works perfectly. And, you know, you just kind of want to admire it from a distance. No, I want to, I want to pick it apart. <laughs> it is the, it may be the best ensemble ever. I wouldn't argue with you. You have how many characters? Seven? Eight? And every single one of them with like just the minimum of a line here and a gesture there, with the exception of the stagecoach rider who is just a, a whole lot of freaking out at the situation. Andy, he, Andy Devine. Andy Devine. I, I have to he say wasn't that. even supposed to be here today. Uh, Andy is our, our, our comic relief in yeah. this and many other Ford films. Yeah, and, he, <laughs> and he's doled out in about the right amount here, yeah. I think. <laughs> Every one of these characters has, once you just get to spend like four or five minutes with them, you understand what motivates them, what like they think is important, what drives them to be in the stagecoach, what makes them want to uh, continue on the stagecoach's trip, what makes them want to go back, and how that they react with every single one of the other members of this ensemble bounces off in a way that's different and yet true to both the characters' collisions. Wayne's enthusiasm is just great against Claire Trevor's uh, desire to fit in the world and yet guilt and fear that she never ever will fit. And how she reacts to uh, Mitchell's doctor character who's also an outsider in their own way. I think he has a great line in the beginning saying, uh, we're like the lepers out of civilized society or something like that as they uh, leave the are kicked out of that town, for example. And just how the gambler reacts to the banker versus how he reacts to the lady who's trying to visit her husband, how he reacts to Johnny Ringo, played by Wayne. They're all notable. They're all unique. But they're all so 
honest to right. the characters. There's such a humanism to this movie because every character but one is given a second chance. We see nice point, man. an initial view of what each character might be. But through their actions, through their interactions, we see other sides of them. We see them as three-dimensional human beings. And I think it's telling that the one character who doesn't get that is the corrupt banker. There's this uh, old stern guy who so represents that snooty upper classism that you could tell watching a lot of Ford movies that Ford cannot stand. He's such an asshole in this movie that I noticed even when he's sitting in the stagecoach, he manspreads. Like, he has his legs all spread out, taking up way more room than he should, like, in this little, you know, small enclosed area. Oh. And it's such a beautiful little visual representation of how this guy sees himself. Because essentially we have, like, all of society in this stagecoach, right? Yes. Yes, so many great representations, yes. Yeah, and Ford is very much on the side of the outsiders, and I love that about him. And it's just so well done. And everyone plays their role so perfectly that these little things about, you know, where people are sitting, who gets offered water, what they're offered water in, like all these touches are so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. And how much is done without dialogue? Yeah. Just the looks that people give each other say so much. Mm-hmm. And as like, like what Peter said too, like how where they're seated on a table, and also how that table is shown, and when like where the camera's perspective is, where it's, whether it's facing a person as they look in this direction or that, or when the camera pulls in past the conversation to go to another conversation going on at that table, that whole sensibility that I was just amazed by in the Lost Patrol, but it is so evident and so put to a fine point of continuous excellence all the way through in Stagecoach. Like, not uh, not only inside an incredibly much more claustrophobic environment within the Stagecoach itself, like, you're right, Peter, the way everyone sits and stands and moves around in that Stagecoach has meaning and defines character. And then it manages to even open itself up to, one I want to say is one of the first looks at Monument Valley, which is John Ford's legendary setting for so many of his films. Yes, John Ford discovered two stars in this movie, John Wayne and Monument Valley. It will repeat in almost every subsequent John Ford Western as well it should. It is breathtaking. And with his abilities with composition you see both sides of it like you said you see how he can do composition in the tight frame of the stagecoach but then when we get outside then when we see uh how monument valley is utilized this was very much the beginning of the golden age of the western and for the next 20 years westerns would be omnipresent and just about the biggest thing that Hollywood would have to offer and it started with Stagecoach. Monument Valley is the greatest metaphoric landscape in history. If you really think about where these guys are traveling that complete arid desert with just these occasional gigantic rock formations actually makes no damn sense. But as a representation 
of where they're traveling, it makes perfect sense as they travel through so much of a wasteland to get these scattered outposts. And it's also about people who are so distinct, who try and fail to connect. And you feel that by looking at these gigantic vistas. Almost as much as when you do and the characters are speaking and interacting with each other. Right. And then you have some of the most exciting action sequences put to film up to this point. In fact, one of those sequences was just about copied shot for shot in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, when yeah. one, of the, uh, one of the Indians uh, chasing the stagecoach finds himself on a horse and is shot and basically maneuvers his way under both the horses and the stagecoach. This is some of the most amazing stunt work you've ever seen. And when it gets into action mode with the chases and Wayne really shines here and and shows why he's going to become one of the biggest stars of the period, it's breathtaking. It really is. And you you were talking about the Monument Valley scenes. There's also a great scene where they're just trying to get the stagecoach across a river. Yes. And that's another great shot where, you know, the the Ford puts the camera on top of the stagecoach literally as it goes in the water. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a, and Wayne is in frame as well. And it, it really looks amazing. Like it brings you there. Like it feels like you're there on that coach trying to cross that river. And it's, uh, I didn't notice that the first time, but the commentary points out you can actually see the camera shadow in that scene, <laughs> but that but that it works so well they left it in anyway. So like it, it's kind of neat that you know that the emotional impact was what judged most worthy, even if there's like a technical flaw in the scene. You know? Yeah, this is one of those movies that just makes you drunk on movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like every shot is so lovingly composed. And every scene is leading somewhere. Yes. And what you were saying about the plot of the story really ties into maybe making this kind of the ultimate example of the Western, or at least what the Western tries to be about. The way I think what a Western is trying to be about is the idea is that you're in a landscape that is so empty where rules and law and order or civilization don't exist for you, and it gives you an opportunity for, as you described the second chance. Mm-hmm. It was the Western dream is kind kind of that American dream. You can start over the immigrants dream on maybe like how they from from people traveling from Ireland and from all over the world. The opportunity for your actions to go and have a second chance of your own life. Really good point. Not to get too far away from one of the visual things, uh, Brad, you mentioned back in the intro about how John Ford impacted Orson Welles. And if we're going to talk about some of the inside shots in this movie are so clearly precursors to Citizen Kane in that there's deep focus, you see ceilings, you're at low angles. Things Welles would do in Citizen Kane are here in Stagecoach. It's not an accident. When they were making Citizen Kane, Wells was repeatedly screening Stagecoach for the crew because that's what he wanted to emulate as far as the what the look of a film can be. So we have a beautifully shot, beautifully acted, beautifully written take on society that I, I can't find a thing wrong with it. I will even go and say, add just a little extra, that the empathy even goes to the ostensible villains whose nervousness and trepidation at meeting up with Ringo Mm -hmm. is given just as much of an attention and respect of how so many glasses get broken, and that ties into the detail of 
how the bartender and his assistants soon decide to take the giant mirror down <laughs> as a result of these guys' increased nervousness. And that leads to my favorite point of Stagecoach. And I, I want to hear your guys, if you have a favorite moment, my favorite moment is right after when Mitchell meets up with them and says, you're not taking that shotgun out to fight Wayne. If you go and use that shotgun, you'll be indicted for murder. And it's right full frame. And then the villain gives a sneering laugh and then, but then puts the shotgun down and walks off. And Mitchell, of course, immediately goes to the bartender and starts drinking and says, Remind me to never do that again. (laughs) (laughs) And that reminds me of one of my favorite Thomas Mitchell moments where he has confiscated his umpteenth uh, bottle of whiskey from the whiskey cellar uh, played by Donald Meek. And he's, he's so offended at the banker wanting to toast that he does the unthinkable and throws his liquor into the fire. And then the fire just becomes this gigantic blaze showing just how powerful (laughs) that that stuff was. Right. But as far as kind of a more meaningful moment uh, that also fits in near, near the end of the film, it was a fascinating decision, I thought, not to show the gunfight, which is the climactic moment you see John Wayne, and as he's ready to shoot, basically jump down to get a uh, a shot from the ground, and then you cut to Claire Trevor, and it was a really cool decision because it shows where the heart of the film is at, which is her character and her sense of redemption and Wayne's place in that. So Ford is constantly willing to defy expectations of just what are Western tropes in order to make the larger point in his film. Obviously, like, Wayne has made such a huge impact with his appearance and his charismatic presence, but if to the extent that this film has a main character, it is Claire Trevor's Dallas story. It is her growth, her development her basic decency of getting a, a, of and guilt about being in her station and how her actions managed to give her this shot at redemption and how the other characters increase their estimation by seeing how she behaves in terms of the dealing with the pregnancy for one example to the extent that it's any individual person's story it's her story the shifting relationship between the two women in the story is really well done to the point where the respectable woman won't be seated near here to the point later in the story where the prostitute is caring for the baby and walking around with her. And that's such a bittersweet scene because you see the heart this woman has, but you know that in her life, she's very unlikely to be able to be, have that for herself. Yes. Uh, Except perhaps maybe, you know, how you view her ending up with Wayne, but it's, it's just the, the emotion of the fact that society doesn't see what's really in her. And that's the heart, you know, the heart of the story. Oh, definitely. And talk on second chances. What a great, what a great conclusion where, which by the way, it's underrated about Andy Devine and the person, like Marshall character, because those guys are supposed to represent the the society and by running the stagecoach themselves, they're trying to instill more, more order. And yet they have this acknowledgement that sometimes you've got to go and break the rules, let people connect and get get to the south of the border already. So their actions at the end, which, by the way, feature the greatest ending partnership uh, since uh, Bogart and Claude Rains started the Mm -hmm. beautiful friendship, where Mitchell's character finishes by saying, 
Well, so much for civilization, huh? <laughs> and they both have a good laugh about that and at the successful escape of <laughs> some characters from it. Now, history and civilization make a more literal turn in Ford's 1939 movie, Young Mr. Lincoln. Now he was admitted to the lawyer's bar. People seek his help from near and far. He could talk a country mile in an old Where Henry Fonda plays Lincoln, and it follows his early years in Illinois, from his first loves to his interest in public service and the law. Much of this plot resolves around his first murder case as a lawyer, and how the future emancipator's down-home wisdom, modesty, and humor hint at his greatness to come. Well, this is the beginning of another partnership that served Ford very well, the first of a number of films in this period that's going to star Henry Fonda. And Henry Fonda certainly captures the look of a young Abe Lincoln. I'd even say he captures some of the nobility, some of the, the humor. But I felt a little disappointed at the disconnect between the story the film is telling and the Abe Lincoln story that Ford so clearly is enamored with. We saw him bring up Lincoln in a very worshipful way when we talked about the Iron Horse. He made a movie called The Prisoner of Shark Island, which was about one of the conspirators in Lincoln's assassination. Lincoln is a character that fascinates Ford, but this film, which concentrates on the young man and a lot of courtroom drama stuff, doesn't really connect for me to the president. This almost plays like a superhero origin story to me, <laughs> honestly. Yep. To the detriment. I think it hurts the story. It's less interesting when you have this kind of worshipful view of someone it almost sets up all these things he has to go through like death he deals with as a young man it introduces stephen Douglas and mary todd almost in a way a marvel movie would like they're going to come around in part two or something yeah. they plant seeds for it and it's just this myth making with not much behind it the trial isn't all that interesting it's just a lot of monologues and lincoln talking and sounding mm. sort of like a smug hipster honestly <laughs> you know he, he's sort of like this zen sort of dude hovering over these rubes <laughs> and, and he's like an intellectual matthew mcconaughey or something like, oh man <laughs> I don't uh, well uh, pete dude not only not are you on a roll but you do realize that matthew mcconaughey by starring as a lawyer in a movie called The Lincoln Lawyer. Uh, you have closed a cosmic thread <laughs> uniting all consciousness, don't you? <laughs> mind, that sound you hear is my mind blown over here. <laughs> yeah, same here, man. <laughs> Me, I wish I was as charitable as you. Because if you're gonna be a myth-making about a person, have the myth be appropriate to the man. Lincoln was not known for his down-home folksy trial behavior. That's Matlock. <laughs> <laughs> Young Mr. Lincoln, to me, comes across as like 
hey, pick a famous figure from history, like say Martin Luther King Jr. Everyone admires Martin Luther King Jr. Hey, remember that cool car chase that Martin Luther King Jr. was involved in? <laughs> what? That has nothing to do with him? That's what this movie is. <laughs> Why are we looking at this situation and expecting to glean anything from Lincoln, his attitudes, his behavior, his stature, what made him a great person through a trial? Which I have to admit my bias is that I'm not a huge fan of trial movies either, but having that be, as you put it, uh, origin story of super president is not really going to work for me in an especially deep case. Yeah, the only thing that a little bit saved the trial for me was the lackadaisical attitude of the judge who uh, found the whole thing more amusing than anything else. Yeah. On Fonda's performance of Lincoln... It's interesting in a couple different ways, uh, like none of which really enhance the main story, I don't think. It, one, but one is that the makeup job is really effective. He does come across in ways that you wouldn't recognize him as Fonda in a lot of spaces. But also how he presents Lincoln in terms of his posture makes Lincoln not just our greatest present, but possibly our laziest because... Time and time again, he's always reclining and putting his boots up on a table. In fact, I even believe he does that through portions of the trial. <laughs> and we're like, will you sit up straight? Yeah. I don't think you need to lecture the would-be president on that, that kind of behavior. Yeah, Fonda will, will, will use the leaning back on a chair thing to better effect in a later movie. To be sure. Uh, he, they, they gave him lifts so that he would appear much taller than he is. And I did kind of like the scenes that pointed out, which, which is historical, that Lincoln really was a strong guy as a uh, former rail splitter. So you have this kind of goofy tug of war <laughs> yeah where, where, where he actually cheats he put he, he puts yeah. the rope on a, a wagon yeah. on a wagon yeah yeah that's that's right <laughs> not the finest quality you necessarily want from the great emancipator yeah. on, honest abe Honest Abe and all things except games of tug of war at the local fair. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, right. To be fair, we didn't see any of the other carnival rides on this rather extended sequence. Of yeah, was he walking show- walking around cheating at the dunk tank too, or what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's he doing? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, yeah. Kind of, I'm kind of sorry that none of us are going to really go to bat for this film because. It is actually one of Ford's most critically acclaimed movies. And in circles outside of this room, people love this movie. I I can point to one thing. What's that? At time and time again, it shows Lincoln as making his fundamental judgment about something that he's lost. Not only does he have what I feel is a touching moment at the graveside of his former love, Anne Rutledge, but... It's a really interesting sequence when he sees the family of the people who are put on trial. And he says, you could have been my sister. You could have been like this girl I knew, Anne. So, and this is something that I think Ford conveys well in the direction of, of these scenes. And Fonda delivers in the performance that so much of what guides him, it's a sense of loss, maybe a sort of foreboding, some way that like, he maybe even anticipates the looming disaster that he has to deal with coming up. You know, it's a sort of melancholy that I don't think you really see in Abraham Lincoln or had seen in depictions up to that point. Yeah, I think one thing that 
a lot of people would appreciate about this film that didn't quite play as well with us is this idea of taking the great man and humanizing him. We're kind of more interested in the story of the great man. But for fans of the film, the idea that you could look at him as this regular guy from Springfield is an attractive one. Sure, sure. But then it goes and gets mythologized again. Lincoln's life gets put through a hokum processor where it gets disassembled and then reassembled as what John Wynn would be if he was a tall, gangly um, uh, person from Illinois. He's not backing up from a fight, always figures out just the clever way to get out of a situation. The man of the people who shows this man of the peopleness at every possible location. It's as much BS as anything you could say in, say, like a hagiography of him as a great statesman, but it's of a different kind. Can we talk about how ridiculous the end of this movie is? Like the very last sequence. So basically you're looking at it. Should we have Abraham Lincoln walk to the top of the hill like a victor? Well, no, that's quite not quite enough. How about we have him walk up there in a thunderstorm? Nope, not yet. We still need the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, <laughs> now we're <laughs> cooking with oil. Yeah. The, the approaching thunderstorm, yeah. yeah. When periodically through the movie you feel that the Lincoln character could finish what he was doing, which he just, what, whatever problem he had just solved, no matter how minor, and then he just dusts himself off and goes, all right, now to fix slavery. Mm. And it wouldn't actually feel out of place. <laughs> the movie's kind of screwing up. I mean, me, I, I kind of see what he was doing. And while I see it's a little over the top at the, at the very end, a, a little, I might be underestimating it in your impression, the real offense to me is not just that, but the moments right before it. It's not just that it's a trial thing, and I don't like courtroom dramas, but it, it is the most hokiest, unaired episode of Perry Mason-level courtroom nonsense, right down to the fact of, like, the guy suddenly confessing, and it's just goofy nonsense from start to finish. And like the two parts that really show up for me is that there's a guy who is a complete drunk who Lincoln totally adores and puts him as a member of the jury, which by the way, looks very much like it may very well be the same drunk who shows <laughs> up at judge priest might be the exact same guy. <laughs> and the resolution hinges on an almanac so that anyone be... could have looked up to see that the alibi was full of holes. Exactly right. Me, I appreciate that in this way. Then this movie should be about how great Benjamin Franklin is. Because Benjamin <laughs> Franklin wrote that damn thing. And that exonerated him more than anything Lincoln did. <laughs> yeah, what that trial needed was a spittoon gag as far as I'm concerned. So. <laughs> that whole trial is a spittoon gag. <laughs> Well, we're going to stick with Henry Fonda, but change tones drastically with Ford's adaptation of John Steinbeck's famed novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Whether somebody's struggling to be free Look in their eyes, my, you'll see me Of 
It's brought to life in this 1940 film starring Henry Fonda as Tom Joad, whose dirt-poor Oklahoma family must struggle to survive after losing their farm during the Depression. They and migrant workers from across the Dust Bowl travel to California in hopes of promised work, but what they find is as far from the American dream as what they left behind. You know, if young Mr. Lincoln was this kind of like snake oil medicine you'd sell at a traveling uh, sideshow carnival, I think Grapes of Wrath is the antidote. Everything that got so put into a vat of sentiment in the previous movie now just brings a truthfulness through just the details, the, the period details, and the examinations of the different struggles that the, that the Joad family goes through in so many different ways and so many different forms in their course of this film. It's an absolutely vivid film in any way. And of the films we're talking about, I think it's his best short of stagecoach. The way that poverty is depicted here is so visceral because we're not just dealing with anonymous people in sad situations. Every character is three-dimensional and you can see their struggles. You know, you run into John Carradine, who could not be more different than the character he played in Stagecoach mm-hmm. as this former preacher who's lost everything and now doesn't know what to do with himself. He doesn't even have faith. So he's going to follow where the wind takes him. Yet he becomes kind of Joad's most trusted companion. And then there's the wonderful relationship between Tom and his mother, played by Jane Darwell, in another monumental performance. We really care about these people. And the film, especially for this period, is not shy about showing the ravages of poverty. I'm not quite as high on this one as you guys are. I mean, I recognize its status as a classic, but and it certainly looks beautiful. I mean, Greg Toland's work in this film is flat-out amazing. I mean, the cinematography, it's one of the most beautiful films I think I ever shot. I think the problem I have with it is that I don't get the three-dimensional characters as much you're talking about. Like, Tom Joad, to me, well, well, as much as I agree with his politics, he feels more like a walking polemic to me than than a character like he's this movie gives you the message first and the character second rather than letting the message of the film go out of the characters and spending time with them like it's so upfront with what it's doing that it put me off a little bit Uh, there's something that kept me from loving it like i couldn't connect with it as emotionally as i should have given the subject matter and i think i just kind of felt beaten over the head a bit with this Well, I mean, it certainly is not subtle in its politics, nor was Steinbeck's novel, where a lot of the dialogue was taken directly from. But Henry Fonda, I don't think, has ever been better. Where we just saw him kind of do this folksy thing in Young Mr. Lincoln, here he's so believable to me 
as this haunted character. You know, we go back to the themes of guilt, and he still has that, but now he has to combine that with the desperate situation he and his family is in and the constant inner struggle not to resort to violence again, which at one point he fails at. But for the most of the film, you see this tearing at him. I found the performance mesmerizing. Now, I'm actually with a combined impression. There's several different impressions that I have about Fonda and his performance in Grapes of Wrath, several of which are directly counter to each other, because I think this is a case where he is both miscast and knocks it out of the park. This is a case where he is doing polemics, but grows as a character. Because, for one thing, Henry Fonda is such a fountain of decent behavior that I cannot see him clubbing some guy to death with a shovel. I can't even see him doing that as Frank in Once Upon a Time in the West. Just don't see it. So that part, I sooner believed there was some sort of a trial where he was framed and he didn't have a young Mr. Lincoln to help out. <laughs> so this part where I'm watching the movie when for this podcast, this is the first time I'd seen the movie where I was aware of what the hell the Grapes of Wrath were. Up until then, I was always just thinking this is just a bunch of really, really unfortunate people and more horrible things just befall them. But part of the story that came alive to me this time is it's supposed to be about a guy who, facing these troubles, doesn't lose himself, who tries to find a way out, um, the way that the, the McLaughlin character from The Informer never had a chance to. He's getting almost as dire circumstances where it seems the entire world is against him and his family. And he's getting more and more angry and he's being led to react with anger. And this will, of course, cause everything to get lost. And it's how does a person find his way out? That's where I think Fonda's development is actually really wonderful in it. Because he starts off as somebody who he obviously doesn't trust the authorities and he's obviously wants to put putting his family first but i think fonda really effectively brings off as he sees the um former preacher get himself educated and i think that's part of the also the point in the movie is how people are looking for a way out and this is a way where bonding together with your fellow man is a method and is how he acquires the method a mission a sense of purpose that's how he grows, not in terms of like his temperament where he starts off angry, but as a person who is unformed and becomes formed and dedicated by the end of the film. I think that's a real unique aspect to this film because so many movies are content to show us the tragedy with no way out. Yeah. So here you have a series not only of tragedy, but of broken promises, yeah. where they're promised there'll be a better life in California, there'll be jobs, and they go to these towns full of migrant workers who are then abused by the cops and treated in all manner of dehumanized ways. But... Then they actually do end up at a federal government camp where there is an interest in solving the problem, where there are people who are legitimately there to help. 
And that creates a sense of hope. Yes. But more than that, and, and this goes back to what Henry Fonda does, is a sense of activism. Because when he gives the famous speech about wherever you look, I'll be there, it really does hit home this idea that, yes, things are terrible, but you can fight them. I think what the problem I have is that you see what the message he wants to convey from the outset. Mm -hmm. He has a point of view. He has something he wants to say. I agree with that point of view. The Jodes in this story are just pieces he moves around to get to his point of view. And I wish it had been, we had been given the Jodes first rather than the path we see that this movie is clearly and the story is clearly going to follow at the outset. If that had happened more organically rather than saying, here's how things are awful, here's how we get out of it, it's very clearly a political point of view. And if it had just stopped being like the misery parade for a little bit and let you breathe these characters a little bit before they go on their journey, I think it would have worked a bit better for me. That directness of political statement in this film really puts me off. I can't get past it. I can okay? I can see that. Um, it's an interesting choice that the movie starts, for example, with Fonda and Carradine themselves, and you don't see the rest of the Jodes for quite a while. Instead, you see someone living there in their house who relates things as a flashback. So you get a sense of the situation and the oppressiveness of the situation for a long stretch in the beginning before you get to see the family, which sometimes I don't like films like that. I don't like a lot of Coen Brothers films for that reason, that I feel that like too often their worlds that they create so successfully are also so hermetic. They just are populated with poor schmucks who don't understand, and they spend time shaking the box and just fucking with their lives. And so to the extent that somebody does that to try and make a political point, I can sort of see that particular attitude, but with the case of the Jode family, I was won over by them because everyone has a way of trying to endure or deal with that situation in a different way. And unlike Coen Brothers, sometimes they do find a way of like sort of escaping or at least leaving the picture. Like the husband of the pregnant lady, for example, he had a dream of like getting a, a trade in the uh, electricity and eventually leaves for parts unknown and they hope that they he pursues that but he might not the way the um the older teenager is is um uh, sort of oblivious because he's always after girls and the way that's re rendered is really nice and the way those kids react to it is like actually some an adventure in times i love how they keep ducking under the signs when they when they pass in and their first appearance of like when they see a toilet they're like you broke it oh you broke it <laughs> The, those are real fun. And then the mother's character who has to put in the weight because the father has sort of checked out. Right. And both the great-grandparents, how they react to things uh, differently is also really fascinates me, how, um, uh, how the grandpa like expires as well. It reminds me, again, of Stagecoach, not in tone, but in, in the sense yes. of characterizations and Ford's ability to create these complete characterizations with so little screen time just based on on his work with the actors mm -hmm. see and i think that's and a, behavior i think that's the difference for me is that i certainly got that characterization out of stagecoach i didn't get it here 
Did you get it out of the mother at all? Or? Well, she's definitely this. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, his relationship with her is definitely the strongest part of mm-hmm. the film. But I just wish there had been more time spent on their relationships between each other as people rather than as instruments of suffering. Mm. I, look, I'm clearly in the minority here, you know, in terms of how this film is perceived. I just can't get past that. This almost feels like if Bono were around to have done the soundtrack for this, like he would have done it because he's so Mm -hmm. like overblown in his political statements. Mm -hmm. Like this is that type of same feel for me, this bombastic big statement, which kind of stomps on the honest emotion of the story. It's funny because I'm I'm very sensitive to that in other movies. And I have found myself disliking movies based purely on, on that criticism, but I just didn't sense that here. You know, we're looking at when this comes out is just at the tail end of the Depression with Roosevelt in office. And this is all very recent history for the original audience uh, of this film. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. I I completely respect what it's aiming at. And to be honest, my politics are right there with this movie. It's just the how of it Mm -hmm. that I can't get behind. And I feel like just to use Brad's word, the system is like this monolithic villain in this movie. It just hovers over everything. Mm. And like, that's the hard part of it. All these people running around in this hopeless maze, it just was too much. Hmm. I mean, because I see so many points of the movie where it just has these moments of beauty and not just like in the sense of uh, beauty and squalor like a Tarkovsky movie either. Like when they finally cross the border into Cali- uh, California and they get to see they these stop vast- at the uh, Yes, yeah. yeah, that is just spectacular. Oh, the, the, there are undeniably moments of visual beauty in this film. Like I won't... And look, I would still say see this movie. I mean, there's no reason not to see it. It's just that it never rises to the... I think masterpiece level it's generally granted I think in you know the film world. I wonder sometimes about like how much does this get the masterpiece moniker. I think it does manage to earn it in the sense that it has such a level of thoroughness of just getting the subject the details right for however awful you find that and mechanistic I guess is a way of putting it you put this labyrinth that they the characters find themselves in you kind of can't deny that every single moment of like how the dilapidated these things are, all the different specific ways that people are exploited, and just the fact that it's just not them, but there's so many more people before and after them to show this is just a continuum of humanity. All this is delivered with, I think, an amazing level of detail, and because they're delivered with such detail, it gives me a great sympathy for that situation, It gets me to honor it because the detail makes things so specific that it doesn't feel to me like a polemic, you know? If you care enough to look at the way, like, these kids, like, take the scraps of clothing and and, and wear it, or, like, the way the different rags hold the headlights up of their, of the most reliable jalopy that's ever been put on <laughs> film. This this sucker keeps good. The Energizer Bunny of, of Rust Belt jalopies. This guy keeps going and going and going. How these guys make do and manage to still keep traveling and still keep enduring, like that speech that's done at the end could come across as a simplistic statement. Maybe it does for people. But I, through their travels and the details that... Ford brings up in there, I think it honors the sentiment done by Majo's speech at the end. 
Well, I, you know, I guess the the question becomes, how invested are you in the characters? And Peter, you are coming from the point of view that it, the film didn't succeed at that level, no. because that to me is a cure for the polemic thing, because true, you know, politics has a place in art, an important place, but if it seems like propaganda then it's not going to be as effective as if it's attached to people you care about. I want to give just one final note up on the cinematography, at least from my end. It's not just brilliantly done in making things beautiful or disturbing as the, as the stories allow, but it does a feature which I think is really interesting and in that it inverts the noir formula because the family is at its worst when the light is brightest, when mm. it's the harsh sunlight that leaves light people no escape. Like they had this really suspenseful trek through the desert going across California, and time and time again, when an authority figure focuses the light on a camera to expose them and show them where they are so they can be attacked or arrested or so on. So light becomes a threat here, and darkness becomes more of a refuge. Well, that situation may be directly reversed in Ford's next film. He goes nautical in The Long Voyage Home in It's uh, collects a series of short stories based off a series of short plays from Eugene O'Neill in the episodic adventures of a crew of a British tramp steamer shortly before England's entry into World War II. Transporting explosives through a war zone is one of the many challenges faced by the ragtag sailors as they dream of returning home to England and points beyond. Yes, and once again, Ford is working with cinematographer Greg Tolan. And we've talked a number of times now about the Citizen Kane analogy and how Tolan would go on to revolutionize film with Orson Welles. But this is sure another step leading up to that. The look of this film is beyond rich. For me, there are points where the narrative is not the strongest Ford has ever dealt with, but the look does not fail. Certain parts of this film are much stronger than others, in my opinion, which I think we'll get to because of certain actors that are focused upon in mm -hmm. parts of the film. But it is undoubtedly beautiful. It's also uh, notable, and um, this is shortly before the U.S. will enter World War II, and it's very much about uh, that plays a role, like Ford's desire to make that fight is part of this movie as well and what these guys are doing and the payload they're carrying in a sort of uh, wages of fear-esque oh nice uh, mm -hmm. um you know where these guys are very economically disadvantaged and being having to put their lives at risk by carrying this load of explosives through a war zone basically mm -hmm. to me it was a um a grafted supercharged 
an expanded version of the pure message done by the Lost Patrol. These are people who are all various stages of Lost, and their sense of being out of place, without a country, are now represented so effectively by visually being adrift. Well, you know, Al, when, when we were talking about the Lost Patrol, you mentioned uh, one of the soldiers telling a story about encounters with native women in an exotic yes. locale. And that's actually how this movie opens, with a shot of a scantily clad native woman from the West Indies in what on the surface level seems to be sexually suggestive, but the way it's shot is also very ominous. And you do have this first part of the film is kind of the one sequence where everyone kind of gets to relax and have a bit of fun, which, of course, because it's Ford, includes a, a fist fight. But considering how much the tension is ramped up as the ship gets into more and more danger. It's a very cool way to start proceedings. You're so right, Brad, that it does ramp up the tension in a really, really nice way, especially when they have to uh, start navigating through areas which might have mines and they have to paint all the light sources so that no light comes through. And this Mm -hmm. uses cinematography to just a brilliant effect in feeling and in purpose. Right. It can't be overstated how this kind of noirish uh, cinematography works wonders in a nautical setting. So true. And because you're always in the dark and so much is left to your imagination, the illusion of being at sea is very complete here, even though you know it was filmed in some studio somewhere. <laughs> but when you get the seafaring scenes, for me, it, w- it was more convincing than a lot of the more modern CGI equivalent scenes. They go all out on both levels of the seafaring part and the cinematography part. There's so many parts where characters are, are, are in a disturbed situation They just move the light source so the very masts and cross masts of the ship provide these endlessly moving diagonal lines. It's just such a great graduation from the old technique of using like vertical jail bars or blinds to show a compromised character. They're just like they're, it feels to me like an enveloping spider web of darkness and it's enroaching on them. And there's a wonderful scene where they they feel they have a moment of respite and John Wayne and Thomas Mitchell, once again, are lying on their backs, and then suddenly a dark shape goes across their faces, and it turns out to be a result of a bomber. Mm, yes. Yeah, and as for the seafaring, Ford does not hold back with some of the most impressive water sequences out to, out to that point. As, the, as these people are... Uh, navigating their way through a storm, these gigantic waves are knocking these guys from one side of the ship to the other. And in one real great shot, the camera is put right there on the deck level. So you see a guy off in the far distance, like 20 or 30 feet, as he's trying to fix some rigging, and a giant wave comes at him. The wave hits the camera and washes by, and when the and when the wash from the wave comes by, you see the guy's unconscious form right next to the camera. Mm-hmm. He has been launched 20 feet. 
No, that is an amazing sequence. And I would like to point out, too, like the character work that's in this. There's amazing suspense work with the, I believe the character's name is Smitty and his backstory and why he's on the boat in the first place Mm -hmm. and how the other people perceive him and the paranoia just floating through the air with with the pressure they're under. So for me, the struggle with this film is we have Greg Tolan, we have John Ford, we have a Dudley Nichols script. So why isn't this film great? I think where it falls short here is it's a bit overstuffed and it doesn't focus to me on the characters who deserve that focus the most. I'll go directly to the weakest point of the film, which is the third act, which focuses on John Wayne playing a Swedish character. He really hasn't spoken very much throughout the film. And when he starts to speak, you find out why. (laughs) Because because if we were going to have our Razzies for this section of the John Ford career. We now have a competitor for Boris Karloff for worst performance in the films we've seen. Mm. It, it's really a weak point of the film. The third act of the film concerns the character we, we the characters we like trying to get his character's name is Oli on a boat to go home, and Wayne's character he's just attempting one of the worst accents you've ever seen. It took me entirely out of the movie frankly sounded like he was drunk to me i didn't know he was doing that well, I'll, I'll both. <laughs> which is a fair observation seeing as how often and the characters are drunk in the movie i'll both agree and disagree with you because undeniably john wayne cannot do a swedish accent and, and it's a shame that, that they had him try because I actually found his character very endearing aside from that. Okay. You know, this is, uh, surprisingly, after his star turn in Stagecoach, he's very much part of the ensemble. This does not come across as a John Wayne movie, even, oh, no. even though he is in it. But he's playing this really innocent character who just doesn't know what he wants but the other characters realize that he's not meant for the sea and that the best thing is for him to go home so they the third act is very much about them trying to ensure that he gets home i think his reactions ring true to me but you're absolutely right the accent does not I also want to point out that Thomas Mitchell, again, really delivers. I think he gives the best performance here and is this rough and tumble kind of guy, but you could definitely tell he's got the heart of gold. Yeah, and I think uh, Ward Bond is also strong Mm -hmm. as Yank. And I think that just makes Wayne stand out all the more because his role is really meant to drive home the theme of, of the story, right? Like these men, like getting to a family life or getting to safety. And his character has to carry us across the finish line. Like we need that character to be strong because the movie is pinning its message on him during the most its most important part, like its home stretch. And unfortunately, Wayne's performance is so awful that it acts, it drags the whole movie down with it in a lot of ways. And nautical metaphor nicely. I, 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 I didn't say I didn't say it acted like an anchor, so I could have done that. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it's just unfortunate that like that's the character they focus on when it's making its final point. It's not like the scenario is bad. Like the 
they, they go to these bars where it's set up in a really good way. And then it's like it's all, you know, the spotlight is on Wayne and he just wilts. I don't think I've had a movie experience where one performance was so poor that it had such an effect on the movie until here. I, I truly think he's that bad. Wow. That, like, it has an impact on the film as a whole. Hmm. I mean, I, I thought it was a weak element, but it didn't nearly distract me as much as it did you. We spend the first two-thirds of the film kind of suffering along with these guys and these great characters and actors giving a great performance. And effectively, what I think the movie's trying to do is redeem their suffering by this one guy getting away from the situation oh. they're stuck in. Oh. And all of their sac- their sacrifices are going to have meaning because they're getting this guy out of this situation. Oh, and unfortunately, And unfortunately, that guy is John Wayne in this movie. <laughs> and it's like the Saving Private Ryan of Private Ryan was just like, the, the biggest bro douchebag or something like you know like you know it, it's just it's just that sort of thing where to go back to saving private ryan where you know if tom hanks is grabbing and saying earn this he doesn't earn it it just i could not roll with that to be See, fair if guess, it was wayne it would be like bro with a an o with a slash <laughs> <laughs> see again just shifting a little bit you can come away with a, a very different reaction because I'm looking at those same scenes, except my point of identification is with not Wayne's character, but his crew, because he's oblivious. He doesn't understand the stakes, but they do. So it's a fine line, but the investment is not so much with whether Wayne gets to go home as with whether the mates get to send him home. Hmm. My perspective of that actually didn't even come from what either of you guys. I never felt that level of that they were leaving the ship to do a sacrifice because I took it that they had this huge mission and the mission's done and now they get to leave. Now they get to leave. And I think it's the the ultimate tragedy of the movie is that so many of them come back. There's only one guy, the... The wonderfully named Donkeyman, which, by the way, is not to show that he's an idiot or anything, but it's because the particular ship engine is called a donkey engine or donkey piston. He is the guy who will never leave the boat. He's already realizes the sea is the only home for him. But every other character, for various reasons, has reasons to leave, and that they all sort of come back. Some are dragged back. Some are dragged back to ships that weren't the ships they were originally, but they all come back. And that's kind of where I think they were coming from as opposed to it's their big mission to help the big help the big guy get respite. That's how I took it. But the ending, though, I found wonderfully poetic. As the donkeyman sees one by one, they come back on the ship, and he reads something, and he's so aghast that the newspaper falls, and the fa- paper flows in on the current, and you see in the ripples of the water what happened to one of the ship's the the movie ends with a uh, very melancholy note of fatalism. Yeah. And that note is continued in Ford's next film.
Through the eyes of a 12-year-old, How Green Was My Valley, released in 1941, takes a nostalgic look at a Welsh mining town in the 1800s. As conditions worsen at the mine, the family faces its own generational fraying as the father's stern traditions are challenged by a call to strike while his daughter must choose between a loveless marriage and the town's forward-thinking pastor. So, this movie has the biggest reputation that people know it from today is this the horribly inferior Oscar-baked nonsense that tragically ruined uh, Citizen Kane's rightful place as best picture. Do you guys agree? No. Uh, I certainly agree that Citizen Kane should have won Best Picture, as it should have in just about any other year it might have been nominated. But barring that, this, I think, is a wonderful film. It's emotionally resonant, beautifully shot, and kind of continues some of the themes of Grapes of Wrath, showing the struggles of poor people, this time in a completely different setting, the injustices uh, faced by coal miners, all while looking at family life, which is one of Ford's uh, favorite issues to explore. I think here it's explored very effectively, especially due to the performance of Donald Crisp, as the family father who has this strict but loving way about him that is very resonant. This movie gets right what The Grapes of Wrath got wrong, in my opinion. Um, Here we have a lot, as you mentioned, a lot of the same themes coming back, but we spend time with the family and we get a sense of their relationships and they're here. The people connect with me, whereas the Jodes and grapes of wrath did not. This felt like an authentic family with authentic routines, authentic relationships. Um, just almost like a fairy tale storybook setting, which is such beautifully, uh, constructed factories and these steps leading up to them, uh, where they live. It almost, it looks like something, straight out of a fairy tale, kind of a malevolent fairy tale, if you will. This film made me feel for the characters, made me feel for their plights, drove home kind of the poetic, it has a political point of view, a pro-labor point of view, all done in exactly the right balance. You know, I think that fairy tale aspect you mentioned is really interesting because one of the decisions that helps this movie succeed in in my opinion is that we are seeing it from roddy mcdowell's point of view because he's a child looking back on this time we're seeing these characters as he would see them so you have him looking at different members of his family in an idealized way and Roddy McDowell at this age was so expressive and gives uh, one of my favorite child performances. His eyes are really what I'm talking about. And again, Ford is such an observational director that his reactions 
to what's going on around him drives so many points home. Oh, th- this movie asks asks so much of McDowell that it's astonishing that they were to put a big studio picture like this on the back of a 12-year-old kid <laughs> new to the United States, you know, a war refugee essentially from England. Hmm. And I, it's a, the idea that he, you know, I complained during the long voyage home uh, section about how so much weight was put on John Wayne's character and he failed miserably. Here we have someone having all that weight putting on, being put on them and delivering to the utmost extent. And the fact that it's a child is really all the more astonishing. I would have to agree this is one of the finest child performances I've ever seen. Mm, he, he has to do a lot of things, but a lot of things that he's doing is impressive on a physical level because he's they show a lot of him and when he decides to take on a job as a coal mine he has to portray as a crippled child for long stretches of the film what i don't see in for him is any drama like we it reminds me of a film we did in earlier podcasts uh, angela's ashes which also had like a impoverished family from uh, a kid's point of view but where that kid grew and changed and had an increasing appreciation from the complexity of a situation, I didn't see that here in any real great way. I, it seemed to me that he was, to an, to an extent that I found absurd, because when he would go and say, oh, how green was my valley... And, you know, that wonderful place where half my family died in the mines and my uh, my sister had a loveless marriage. You know, that wonderful valley. Well, uh, the sentiment I, seemed to overwhelm what actually happens in the movie for me. Well, I he, think we have to clarify yeah. what he means when he's saying that is he's talking about the period before all that happens. So this sense of nostalgia is a major theme of the film, but it's not a nostalgia for most of what we see happen in the film, which actually would is a loss of innocence. We see him growing up, but when he says, how green was my valley, it's how green was my valley before the accident that almost left him permanently crippled, before members of his family were killed in the coal mine before he lost his sister. That's what he's looking back to. That's innocence. But what we are going to see is the loss of innocence that leads him to feel that nostalgia. And this isn't, this isn't like a recitation of idyllic times. It's a starting point where you realize what you had because you've lost it. You don't know what you got till it's gone sort of thing. And the idea is that the, the movie is essentially the long process of things leaving, whether they're family members, um, jobs, a way of life, like you said, a loveless marriage. All those things are the peeling away of what is held dear. And the movie is showing you that and assigning value to the things which are taken away. And that, to me, is so interesting that it's acknowledging, like, there's a sentimentality to it, but there's also an acknowledgement of loss. And the fact that the, the movie pulls off real relationships in that, with trying to do what it's trying to do, is really beautifully handled to me. It's so, it's so well-balanced that 
I never once felt like the melodrama outweighed anything. Like it was always the emotions of the characters coming through to me. And it remained at that level, despite some of the flat out tragic things that happened in this film. Right. That's and really I'll, fascinating. I'll bring that back though to, to Donald Crisp, who is the character that Roddy McDowell focuses most on as his father. He is so solid kind of in his belief that the way they have lived is the way they will always live. It's really interesting to see his performance as that's challenged, Mm -hmm. as his sons actually leave the house because they want to strike. And that's something he can't even imagine doing because it's not the way that it has always been. Then you have Maureen O'Hara as the daughter who also shows this inner strength. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at, is these characters have such strength that I think makes this so much better than Angela's Ashes because that movie to me was about the hopelessness. And while this movie certainly puts its characters through just as much of of a ringer, their characters that we're so invested in and that seem like they are strong enough to face these challenges. So when her brothers leave, she goes, I'm going to go with them because somebody needs to take care of them. It's full of these family moments. The tragedy is there, but it takes a back seat for me to to these relationships. That's it. that's exactly it. The relationships um, are what the movie is about, and that's what comes through in the performances. And these some of Ford's most beautifully composed shots are also in this film. So that in effect, what you have are these very touching relationships being captured in the utmost beautiful way that really makes this one of my favorite films of the ones we watched for this. Okay, that's really, really interesting. Because I can only partly agree with you guys on the relationship stuff, and yet I agree with you 175% on the visual presentation stuff. Maybe that's partly because I'm, I'm I very much appreciate when something can visually present. I think you... Well, first things first, is I think you guys are totally onto something in the sense of a presentation of an idealized fairy tale version. Maybe even ide- not, not even necessarily idealized, but everything seems just brighter and like sharper, not just in like cinematography terms, but just is feels more potent, like maybe the way a kid a kid would view things like the 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 coal mine is just darker as it, and, 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 and feels just dirtier than even than even it might actually be. And for one example, in terms of the relationships, that's a hugely mixed bag. Uh, for one thing, this is not really totally from the kid's point of view because there's several sections um, which have things that he never wit- he never witnesses. And to the extent, Peter, that you say it's on the kid's shoulders, I think part of that is because it has the other people who carry it fail. And Roddy McDowell is so successful. Like, Walter Pigeon as the preacher 
is mostly uh, just a colossal misfire. Like every part of his relationship with Maureen O'Hara is just as a as a as a wet blanket drip who does who does nothing to go enhance either his situation or hers. Um, Maureen O'Hara does doesn't have any real characterization to me because she's in this loveless marriage and she's upset about it. And that's I do not see any depth in there um, whatsoever. Where I do see it is with those parents. Those parents are just great. Donald Crisp and, and Sarah Allgood make just this really wonderful uh, uh, parents in this family. And they have this place where they bicker and argue in just this most wonderful and also compli complex way as different times they take different parts of helping guide uh, Roddy McDowell's character to growing up. And where I think like it works the best is is that is in this way as you can kind of tell i'm not really a fan of just overtly sentimental things necessarily or things that are presented straight as sentiment but this is a movie where i felt time and time again that the filmmaking transcended the sentiment so i deeply felt it that scene where walter pigeon's character uh helps Roddy McDowell's character to walk the first time is depicted in such a wonderful measure where you see the town in the background and just these these idyllic fields of like where the plants look like appear to be glowing. It's rendered wonderfully. There's a scene in the middle which is pure sentiment where the mother has sort of recovered and the whole town comes in to serenade her. Again, pure sentiment, but I was completely on board. And the ending moments of this film also are, like, pure sentiment. I think it might be this kid's feeling. Maybe it's the audience's feeling of, of what got lost and what you can just see in your memories or re-experience in your memories. I think there's a really nice line where they say, in your memories there are no borders, there are no fences, mm -hmm. so you can go back there anytime you like. And I felt that feeling was brought out so great in the last five minutes. Just about the Maureen O'Hara and uh, Pastor question. Yep. The idea there is that he sees not being with her, I think, as him sacrificing for her well-being. Because they're looking at it strictly from a financial. He's going to be poor. He's not going to be able to support it. They're going to be stuck. Um, and she is then trapped in a loveless marriage basically because it's the right financial thing to do. It's the right thing for her stability. So the the frustration there is that, you know, she's trapped where she doesn't want to be because he won't, he puts her financial well-being above his love for her. And, and to a certain extent, there's like a frustration of watching these two characters you want to be together, not be together. And, and for God's sake, what's wrong with this man? Why is he not get, hooking yeah. up with Maureen O'Hara? I mean, come on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so that's off as ineffectual to me, yeah. It, there's a certain physicality between the two of them, which doesn't feel right. I'll grant you that. But the idea of what's going on there is, again, being trapped in this situation. So, yes, Walter Pigeon would not be considered a great actor, but you kind of mentioned the scene that redeemed him as he's teaching Roddy McDowell to walk. And I think the filmmaking redeems him 
as an involving character in general. There's this one scene that's uh, maybe the most famous scene from the movie that is just shot so wonderfully that it illuminates these characters, and it's the, the wedding scene. When Maureen O'Hara leaves the church, you see the wind catch her veil in this incredibly dynamic way while the expression on her face shows that she is in no way looking forward to this life. That is a great shot. But what's as telling in that scene is Walter Pigeon standing in the cemetery in the background in long shot. It's not an obtrusive presence, but when you see him, you kind of see that he feels that sacrifice. The sequence you described, the bride exiting the church, I think that was my favorite sequence of shots of any of the movies I watch for this. I mean, if you're with this movie, that, that sequence just killed me. Both those characters have just lost so much, and it's only conveyed visually in the matter of what, 30 seconds or something. And that's so rich and it's pure visual storytelling, you know, and it was just so well done. Yeah, uh, the film to me just also gets marred also a little bit, I'll just say a little bit, by moments of absolute pure hokum, like the blind boxer's attempt of revenge of the principal is a, if it was 30 seconds, it would not be necessary and yet it goes on considerably longer than that. There is an evil deacon, a cartoonishly evil one, and the local gossips are also treated as like these one-note malevolent harpies. By the way, I think I saw Evil Deacon open for Slayer once. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) And that wedding scene is that you guys described is just great, but it's then followed by a deer hunter level of overabundance of celebration. Just keep drinking and carousing all over and over and over again and it ladles on the singing and the dancing and merriment to a level I just found just a little off-putting not I didn't find it I didn't find it too excessive but I, I found the sentiment at times during the movie was just a little too much but then at moments like the ending the filmmaking got me to a level where I did buy it. When I, and when a film can do that, when I am not clearly not buying the scenes that happened right before that, I think that is also pretty special. And I also think it's also super cool on a, in a thought-provoking way, how you design this town. This exact one road town that is using just one ridge and the, the coal mine is at the top of the hill and everyone must walk past their house on the way up and on the way Mm -hmm. down and also the cinematography is really effective at adding this fairy tale child's heavenly reminisce because so often the lights are just pouring out through all the windows of the house where the family lives and that can't be contrasted enough by how scattered the light is when they do the uh, scenes in the coal mine and the way that people are drawn out so slowly and deliberately through this coal mining elevator of judgment is also very, very well rendered. Yeah, so the, and uh, as we move toward the end of the film, speaking of some of Ford's most beautifully composed shots, the faces of the characters gathered around the elevator where they're waiting for another character to come out of the mine are really just stunning. And they're just, they're quick shots and they're just almost like portraits 
but they're so moving. I mean, the look on the actors and actresses' faces, the way they're composed, it's so subtle, but it really hit me hard. Like, it's so well done. Do you mind if we dig into the end of the movie a little bit? Sure. Okay. As I listen to the commentary for this film, I forget the film historian's name, excuse me, but he had a question which I thought was very interesting. He asked if Hugh, the Roddy McDowell character, could be considered a failure. And the reason he asked that is the film starts with the adult character of McDowell, Hugh, packing up his stuff and finally leaving the town as an adult. And throughout the film, he's he's never left a town, despite it being shown to us, that he has an intellect and an ability which will allow him to not have to work, make his living on a physical basis. Like he could, he's smart enough to get out of there and get a better life for himself or he wouldn't be trapped in the mine. But when he has the opportunity to do so, he chooses not to. He chooses to stay with his family and support his deceased brother's wife, essentially. And I think it's an interesting question is, was that right? Should he have just pursued his own interest and left the town and pursued his intellect to get a better life for himself? Or was the family sacrifice the right choice? Hmm. I, I think the film is very critical of, of McDowell's choice because even his family wants him to go the other way, wants him to uh, pursue his education. You know, he's the only member of the family who has that opportunity. We see that the town is dying, that the coal mine is becoming more and more oppressive. You know, maybe maybe there's a uh, an analogy to Walter Pidgeon's character's sacrifice, too, in that they both sacrifice their own happiness for others, but at least in Roddy McDowell's case, you definitely get the sense that he could have gotten out of this and led a far more productive life. Yeah, it's really interesting that this scholar brings that up and makes me wonder what his opinion of It's a Wonderful Life, because he's really what he's really describing is what happens in the first part of It's a Wonderful Life. Are you a loser if you end up doing what you wanted to do? He notably says to his mother, I will never leave you. And he also shows a very strange level of affection towards who became his brother's wife. So does in fact, like he did what he, he did what he wanted. Well, did he really want that or did he feel a responsibility that was instilled upon him by his father. Uh, Did he get some of that gene where things cannot change, where things are the way they always have been? And so I'm not sure that's necessarily what, what he wanted, but it was certainly what he felt he had to do. Well, there's a distinction, though, isn't it, right? I mean, ultimately, did Roddy McDowell's character show any point that he was doing something that he didn't want to do? I'm, I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah, I think to me, as tough as it is, I, I think I have to say he did. He made the wrong decision. Like, I, I do. I, I really feel like he was trapped in those circumstances. And as frustrating and as awful as the life choices he had, like, he had a chance to get away, and he didn't take it. And... Now he ends up effectively leaving with nothing many years later. The movie is tricky because 
It's called How Green Was My Valley. So he's looking back and saying, well, look at what I had. But then there's this melancholy or bittersweet aspect of it where what was the road not taken sort of thing. And that's really interesting to me. Like, I think you're right, Brad. I think the circumstances made the decision for him. And I think ultimately that's almost tragic. Hmm. In a weird way, you could almost think of this movie as a Western in reverse. Because including visually. I mean, how does the ending in Stagecoach happen, right? The characters are going towards an, what looks to be an endless horizon, an infinite u- a universe of infinite possibility. This is a weird situation where I have just seen the movie two days ago, but I think I really want to look at the movie in mind with how the environments get more and more constrictive the more and more it goes on. Because by virtue of the fact of so many scenes getting set in the coal mine in the second half, his life gets more and more constricted and it might be depicted visually in a way that supports that kind of framework about how his options get more and more limited the longer he stays in this town. Well, and I think the the landscape shows that. Like, the sky, I think, is darker with ash. Like, yep. the, the land has been essentially mined for it, all it was worth. What you're left with now is just a pile of rocks, almost. <laughs> There's a real like the land suffering sort of aspect to it, which I, I think uh, was was well done. You, mm-hmm. you know, this seems in every way like a Ford movie, but we should talk a little bit about its origins yeah. because it was almost very different. This was actually a dream project of producer Daryl F. Zanuck. Okay. And he envisioned it being a four-hour, full Technicolor epic film filled with movie stars and to be that year's uh, gone with the wind oh, was so. was what he was huh. thinking of and then the war broke out in europe and the studios basically came back with yeah we can't afford any of that huh so and in other words the, they were going to answer the question of how green this valley was. <laughs> it could have happened and mm. the director the director was going to be william wyler Anyway, when that fall apart, he turned to John Ford, who he had worked with on any number of films, and they'd have a contentious push-pull relationship. But here, Ford's minimalism was what allowed the film to be made, because they had to convince the studio that this could be made without being a giant, costly project. As the And then after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and America is brought into World War II, John Ford goes to war. He and his uh, camera crew, that is. He ends up on the front line during the war effort doing a series of war documentaries, including The Battle of Midway, Torpedo Squadron, and Sex Hygiene. Now, now, Peter, I gather you've seen a couple of these. I I have been fortunate enough to (laughs) enjoy these features. (laughs) And it's really interesting because I think we've uh, we've been taught, you know, as we've been going through all these films up to this point, Ford has been making one film after another. And it's just turning out, in some cases, perhaps three films a year. Yeah. Now, 
World War II changes everything. I mean, obviously not just for Ford, but for everybody. So he he's enlisted in the Navy. He forms, along with a few other directors, basically what's a propaganda unit almost, where they're going to take film documentary footage and use it to sell the war effort back to the public. So the first one you mentioned, Brad, was Battle of Midway, which is one of the first things he did. And it's it's an 18-minute film, which captures actual battle footage and destruction from the Battle of Midway. It's stunning to see. It's on Netflix right now. I, I would definitely recommend you know spending the 18 minutes. It's really stunning. And it's actually almost like pure Ford. It's like an espresso shot mm. <laughs> of Ford because like you get the camaraderie of the men, you get like the sacrifice, you get the stunning shots of war. Um, you get a, a few dashes of humor here and there. So if you want like a, what amounts to an 18 minute primer for everything we've been talking about, check out the battle of Midway. And he cool. didn't do Ford this. Concentrate. And he didn't do this from a safe distance. He got injured while filming this. He did. He was actually injured in the battle of Midway and nonetheless got the footage that he needed and continued to serve in the war from there on out. And I can't recommend highly enough uh, the book called five came back which is about Ford's time in World War II, along with Frank Capra, John Huston, George Stevens, and William Wyler. Just a great read for, I mean, any film fan, but just from a historical perspective, it's so interesting. And it talks a lot about what the, each of these directors did, the films they made during that time, the circumstances of their filming, and everything else. It, it, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And so, it's also a video. Uh, it, also a movie. It is. I have not seen... It's a documentary uh, on Netflix, which I haven't seen that version of it, but I've heard good things. So, you know, read the book, see the documentary. Now, the other film you mentioned, <laughs> Brad, Sex Hygiene, was not made for public distribution. It was a <laughs> film, an instructional film about the horrors of venereal disease so, shown to uh, soldiers during training. It's interesting. It's on YouTube right now if you wish to see it. Take yourself back to that awkward fifth grade sex ed video you watched, and then you'll get an idea of what it's about. And just as a warning, there's full nudity in this. You're going to see more of the greatest generation than, <laughs> than you previously had. You'll also uh, see, see the effects of various venereal diseases and how they're treated, which involve needles and sensitive areas. <laughs> so, oh and in addition to that, uh, just one perhaps my favorite moment from the film is there's a young man who's being examined by a doctor because he has sores on his tongue. And in order to protect this young man's privacy, they put like what amounts to a Lone Ranger mask over his face. And it looks like someone has been taken to the nurse's station of the Eyes Wide Shut orgy. It is so weird. <laughs> that it, it, when, you, when you see this, it's just one of the funniest visuals you'll see. I believe the sound is um, uh, David Lynch rushing to the uh, take this movie out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, sex hygiene for some awkward laughs. Battle of Midway for, you know, the real thing. And the war effort hung over Ford in a way that would impact his film from, from there and out, perhaps none more so than his very next film. They were expendable from 1945. It takes place in the wake of Pearl Harbor as a squadron of PT boats based in the Philippines are called upon to do battle with Japanese warplanes and battleships. Robert Montgomery is out to prove the strategic importance of these small but powerful boats with the help of John Wayne, when Wayne is not romancing a fetching nurse played by Donna Reed. Well, this 
is his first movie uh, coming back from the war. The war was actually still going on as it was being filmed. And we've talked about how personal a filmmaker John Ford is. It was never as true as it is here because he wants to recapture some of the war experience, camaraderie with the troops, battles, various memories that he had just come back from. And my sense of this film is that he very much indulged those instincts because it has a strange pacing. Its basic plot is about proving the utility of these PT boats in combat, but you also have this incredibly languid pacing. You're seeing a lot of things that are not important to the plot. This is going to carry over into his next film where I think it works so much better, but here it just seems like so much of it can be cut. And the only reason I could imagine it not being is because they were personally meaningful to him. This is, you had to be there, the movie. Ford wants so badly to capture the long, boring parts and the mechanical logistics of the wartime experience that at times the movie feels like it is trying to depict the war in real time. Stuff that he was so effective at in sketching characters is almost completely lost in this film as he dedicates time and time again of ships slowly leaving port, ships slowly returning to port, people walking and they can set up rigging, people walking down a long stretch of road, and almost none of it has any meaning or any subtext except to highlight that this part of the war effort is drudgery and monotony. And guess what? He's effective at bringing it off. There's an interesting analogy earlier in the film, like a, a baseball analogy, where they talk about having to lay down a sacrifice bunt if your manager asks you to do so. And effect, effectively what these men are, their lives are the sacrifice bunt. Like, they're just there to keep the area from falling to the Japanese. They know they can't win, but they're just there to hang around long enough to give us a chance to come back later and be victorious. And I think what he's trying to do is honor men who knew they were going to be sacrificed, essentially. What's really odd to me is, so this film is made in 1945, just as the Allies are winning. And here he is making a film about the period of the war where we lost and the sacrifice associated with those early losses. Right. And it's so against the grain that it just leads me to marvel at his humanitarian instincts, where even where this celebratory time, he's over there saying like, you know, wait a minute here, let's consider these losses. And, mm. and that's really interesting to me. Well, well, it shares that sentiment with... Uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk in that way, taking a, a wartime thing and showing it's not wasn't treated as a triumphant moment, but as rather the start. As we were looked over these Ford movies for this podcast, it comes to mind that what I think Ford may have been trying to do is expose the idea, the stagecoach idea, on a 
country warlike level. Remember, Brad, how you were saying every character almost in Stagecoach. It's about getting second chances. And this is seems to me to be trying to, to do that in a wartime effort. Right, and that works on a plot level, but he's a little hampered actually by realism on a character level because, as he knows better than anybody, there's a way of talking in the military. There's a way of talking to your superior. There's a way of talking to your subordinates. And the adhesion to formality in that way of talking kind of keeps the characters from getting too interesting. The one place where that's set aside a little bit is involving uh, the Donna Reed character, who's a nurse. And there's actually a really striking scene where she's assisting a doctor performing surgeries, and you're just seeing a close-up on her face as she's helping one patient and then another and then another, and the kind of seriousness and urgency, but also weariness on her face makes for a great shot. And then as her and Wayne get to know each other, it's the one point in the movie where that military formality is allowed to fall away. So you get these nice little relationship beats. I think what this movie wants to be is a focus on death, loss, and sacrifice. And for that sacrifice to really hit home, you have to have a closer connection to the characters than I think you get from this film. And I think that really does hold it back from achieving what it wants to achieve. Which is a shame, because this is doing a similar thing with wartime that what you guys expressed with the family in How Green Was My Valley. When they get to the point of the actual action, it also does a job of showing the endless different diminishing things, how they lose boats, they lose crew members, and eventually leads to a scene that Werner Herzog would envy, where one of the boats literally gets driven off into the forest. A great juxtaposition, and just highlights the absurdity of a crew without a ship. Yes, and that leads to discussion of the battle scenes themselves, yeah, which are as rousing as can be. You've got explosions everywhere. You've got a mixture of studio footage and stock footage to create some, some very intense war scenes. Mm. By the way, I had the weirdest feeling about these war scenes mm-hmm. because I was tense. I was on like my at the edge of my seat. But for a completely different reason than what what you would expect. I could not buy in the cross between the stock footage and the filmed footage. It was very clear that when the PT boats were in the water, they were not actually attacking something. <laughs> there was just some footage that was done years distant and uh, thousands of miles away. However, as the ships are maneuvering and you see the explosions... Those explosions are real, Mm -hmm. and they're really close. What is missing in this movie is any sense of nautical safety in terms of how to handle high explosives (laughs) at a level that I didn't see since um, Apocalypse Now. It's actually a similar effect to the movie Roar, (laughs) because 
I wasn't engaged in the story. I didn't buy in on that these are, ships are actually getting under threat from other ships. They were under threat from the film crew who were blowing stuff up way too close. There's a moment where a person is leaving a boat carrying something, and he's not five feet away, and they blow up the boat in a fiery oil pit behind him. And I was like, oh, my God. So I was left, like, in just white-hot suspense from the dangers posed by... Uh, John Ford's film crew. <laughs> Maybe too much a documentary. Yeah, right. There's a case where the vermilitude was taken, oh, real close for comfort. Yeah. That kind of leads to the beginning. There's a moment where the boats are meant to put on display, and you have these four boats are swerving to the left in perfect synchronicity, and the other boats are swerving to the right, and I was left thinking, thank God there's not like the 1940s version of Kenny Loggins making you know, water way to the danger zone on this thing, because this is pure 100% PT boat propaganda showroom stuff right here. Frankly, some of those scenes were expendable. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is the vermilitude extends to the title. <laughs> now, John Ford, from a movie which is dedicated to accuracy of a wartime effort, now we're going to look at the accuracy of a myth. Tying two John Ford things together in his 1946 film, My Darling Clementine. And I watch as you It's the famous legend of White Earp, Doc Holliday, and the gunfight at the OK Corral, and it gets the Ford treatment. When Earp's brother is killed by the evil cattle rustlers, the Clantons, White becomes martial and takes it upon himself to clean up the wild west town of Tombstone while seeking justice for his family. Shockingly enough, this is his first western since Stagecoach. Hmm. And... I think it's another great success. The Wyatt Earp story has been told a lot in film. This wasn't even the first one. There was an earlier movie from 1939 called Frontier Marshal. More famously, you have Gunfight at the OK Corral with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. In the 90s, you had dueling Wyatt Earp movies in the same year with Tombstone with uh, Kurt Russell and Wyatt Earp with Jeff Bridges. My Darling Clementine, I think, distinguishes itself very much in its pacing, but unlike they were expendable, the slow pacing really worked for me here. It's not a nonstop action film. It's really a film where you get to know these characters in this setting, and that helps build the theme that I think Ford is really interested in here, which is the civilizing of the West. One could ask, why do you have a Shakespearean actor come in to recite to be or not to be? Why do you have a dance during a church raising? That fits in with the theme of Wyatt Earp trying to make Tombstone a place where a woman like Clementine would feel at home. Nice. 
I think that's really, really nicely put. I would say, to start, give your town a better name than Tombstone. <laughs> Not a lot of tourists want to go to Tombstone. Well, they now they to, do. They want to go to Drunk Widow's Gulch instead. It, it doesn't exactly scream out, start your future here, you know, Tombstone. So. <laughs> that's right. But yes, that's a great point, Brad, because I was left wondering about why this movie is called My Darling Clementine, about a actress who does an okay job playing a not very terribly defined character who barely features in many parts of the story. And I think that you got it. I think that's exactly right. Clementine is the ideal. Yeah, she's defined more by how she's viewed, especially by Henry Fonda, although she's coming to town as Doc Holliday's girl. But Henry Fonda goes through an interesting evolution that's visual because him and his brothers start out fully bearded, rough and ready uh, with their cattle drive. And then when one of his brothers is killed, goes into town, and the first thing is he's going to have a shave. So we're talking about the civilizing of the town. Well, the first thing he's going to try to do is civilize himself. There's a wonderful bit of business later on with the barber where he gets some perfume sprayed on him. Yep. And anytime somebody talks about how wonderful things smell, he goes, oh, well, that's me. Yeah, the it, attempts at civilization <laughs> are so ramshackled that when he tries to get the shave, the chair upends itself and he nearly falls on his head. Right. <laughs> but it's another wonderful Henry Fonda performance in a completely different mode than we've seen him in his other Ford films. He's definitely got the Western hero bit down, but he's far more relaxed about it, as is famously shown in the scenes where he just kind of leans back on his chair as somebody's trying to uh, to talk to him and you know, yeah. just half paying attention. But he creates these little moments that are just so precious. As I was reading uh, various reviews of these, one word that popped up that I thought was perfect is just laconic. Mm -hmm. This movie is so kind of spare and stripped down on its own pace. Uh, to be honest, like I watched this twice, and the first time it didn't register with me at all. And I kept seeing how everyone loved it, so I thought, well, all right, I need to give this a second shot. And if mm -hmm. I truly don't like this, I need to figure out why. <laughs> and and. I finally adjusted to his rhythms the second time. For my money, it's the one where he integrates comedy to the best effect. The bit you're talking about where he just kind of low-key keeps saying, Barber. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Like, it, it's done really well. So, and Doc Holliday is just a great character. Victor Mature has the perfect face for it. He really doesn't need to do anything other than have that haunted Face yeah, and right. it's perfect as Doc Holliday. Because yeah, he looks he's, like a guy who's dissolving as we see it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. He's not known in general as a great actor, but he's really effective in this and probably a Kiss of Death as well. Well, he just has the perfect presence for yeah. this. Like, he doesn't do a whole hell of a lot, yeah. but he absolutely cast perfectly. Personally, I'm just a little, I guess I'm a little biased against the movie because I was looking at it in. The Shadow of Tombstone, which I find in every single possible way is a superior effort, including showing a better romantic relationship between Wyatt Earp and his romantic interest in that film. Doc Holliday, both historically and in Tombstone, the movie, is a really amazing character because he is a guy 
who thought he was only going to live for a very limited amount of time due to his ailment. And as a result, he actually became the best gunfighter, as well as being a wild drunkard, and he just could not get killed. We, even though, so it was a case of a death wish where it wasn't where that wasn't being fulfilled. <laughs> well, admittedly, a lot of it is delivered through Val Kilmer's epic performance in that film. And mature, I totally agree, has that presence, but the movie does not put him in that spot. It's unfortunate because his character has all the drama, but has none of the action to resolve that drama whatsoever. Like, he tries to get out of the town, Henry Fonda just defeats him easily in a gunfight. But then also, like, the way he's defeated at the end is just the most embarrassing joke of as he just coughs himself until someone shoots him in the gut. (laughs) But he has the most dramatic conflict, where he is so out of place. He's a Shakespeare-quoting guy who's sick, and yet everyone fears him. There's so many inherent contradictions, and his character does not go anywhere with it. Meanwhile, all the action, all the agency comes from Fonda's white Earp character, who basically is a goody-two-shoes guy who means really well, and oh gosh, golly darn, can I go dance with this lady? And every, every moment is done in this idealized version of not just a superhero, but like a 1964 Batman uh, level performance. Not every cowboy hero is going to be conflicted, but uh, I do think the Tombstone comparison is interesting because I also love Tombstone. I think it's an excellent film, but I think it's an excellent action film. Yeah, And that's an area where these two movies are just going for different things. Tombstone is going for this epic action, and it does it so well. But Ford is going for something a lot quieter and, like you were saying, Peter, a lot more laconic. Yeah, I totally grant you on that. It very well could be that my adoration for the more exciting and intense film is causing me to be immune to the kind of particular charms that this does. I just want to add that what Earp has an actual straight-up dilemma in that he never actually wanted to be Marshal of the Town. And there is a really potentially interesting conflict of do you want to be loyal to this town or do you want to move on? And something that my darling Clementine doesn't really deal with at all. He's He helps the town out as much as he can until he takes care of the Clantons and then he just leaves. Well, he's not so... Selfless. I mean, he also wants to bring justice for his family, which by the end of the movie has ended up with two of his brothers being killed. Yeah, and I think no one gets what they want in this movie. They just all keep moving, which is I think is really interesting because he doesn't get to be with Clementine. He doesn't get to stay in, in town. He loses two of his brothers. He, he moves on and you think, oh, maybe someday I'll come back and see you. But he takes it all sort of in this stride which I really appreciated. It's a low keyness that still, through Fonda's performance, allows you to see that he's still feeling it inside. He's just controlling it in a way. And it's a really interesting play off of the Doc Holliday character who is all this anguish and angst and torture. Whereas like Fonda just sort of accepts that there's going to be all this terrible stuff in life and keeps moving on. And it's a constant process. So, like, I think it's appropriate that he keeps moving at the end because there's always going to be more struggle and more strife, but you're still moving towards 
your goal. I like that, that it isn't a happy ending necessarily. That worked really well. Yeah, except that he just says he'll come back once he's done telling his pa about the situation. And so, I mean, it's possible to look at the that he might not come back. His, some further adventure might, might stop him in his tracks. But it doesn't look like he's moved past Clementine. He's very much enthusiastic to check out that school if he ever does get a chance to come back. You could say that it's cool that he feels that he might not. Yeah, it's an open-endedness that gives the film a little more resonance. I also want to uh, credit one of my favorite character actors here, Walter Brennan, the head villain, uh, Old Man Clanton. Brennan is generally known for playing these uh, wacky sidekick characters, but here, as the villain, he has real menace to him he doesn't have a lot of screen time so in in a very short time he really puts the point across kind of one of the defining walter brennan stories is whenever he gets a role he uh, asks his director teeth or no teeth (laughs) because he basically had no teeth and to play a certain kind of role he could take the teeth out and be a little more gummy but here he had teeth and he does. Yeah. And he does. <laughs> I am not a huge fan of Walter Brennan. I find in a lot of his later roles that he could be replaced by an animatronic bear from a Chuck E. Cheese exhibit because he's such a, a one-note bow-legged uh, jamboree caricature. Oh, but what and, a note it is. Uh, okay, and some people might really like that note. However, one of the cool things about seeing him in this film is just to make an understanding of why people like him so much because I only knew Walter Brennan from like films like Rio Bravo as this caricature. Now seeing him here as a straight up villain, but a complex one who has a, such an interesting chase of family dynamics, different than how the Earps do with how he treats his kids, seeing him do, just do menace, attempted friendliness, and sudden violence, it was so cool to witness that I got sentiment by proxy for his later roles. So I really, really like Brennan in here with teeth. Makes me wonder about his vampire movie, what which teeth he'd bring. <laughs> Having a Shakespeare-spouting Doc Holliday was pretty cool in and of itself. And fits within the theme of the film, as does the look of it, because never have daytime clouds seemed so ominous as in this film again that framing comes into play and also the use of monument valley because here monument valley is in the backyard of tombstone completely ahistorical as is most of the wider legend but wow visually to see monument valley now be contrasted with this town really provides an extra oomph. Oh, yeah. This is one of the most uh, vertical westerns when it comes to depicting things visually. Monument Valley obviously works like a charm for that, but also consider um, how well Fonda uses his lanky girth to express himself. Like, when he's leaning his foot against the post... Ford frames it with a whole succession of posts leading on this front porch, mm-hmm. of which his leg is like almost at like at a perfect right angle. 
And in a great dancing scene, when he finally hits a dance floor, his dancing is like super angular. Like he's bowing the back of his leg like some kind of a bird. <laughs> and look at that church ringing the bell. Out in the middle of a big wild blue yonder, you see just the vertical supports. And what looks like, if you squint, the bell ringing like in the middle of the air. Talk about like some sort of like maybe celestial way of heralding wow. the approach of the town. Cool observation. It's partially built only too, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I also think ultimately what Peter, your point about how people not getting what they want ties into something that we were thinking about with so many of other John Ford's films. This idea of the American dream of getting through second chances. The chance of a ex marshal in Wyatt Earp to be a marshal again. The chance of Doc Holliday to become a to become a doctor again. And the chance for Clementine to be a love interest twice. <laughs> <laughs> and the chance for Tombstone itself. Right? Mm-hmm. What comes after Tombstone? Well, for our purposes, and again, we can't cover every Ford film, but when we return in John Ford Part 2, we will start out with the Calvary Trilogy, which includes Ford Apache, she wore a yellow ribbon, and Rio Grande. We'll have that second look at the topics that Judge Priest was exploring that Brad mentioned in The Sun Shines Bright. Give a look to his legendary The Searchers and finally find out who shot Liberty Valance. Can't wait. Pete, thanks so much for joining us for Th this first half of our exploration into John Ford. Thanks so much for having me. I can't imagine a better way to have uh, found my way through John Ford than with the help of you guys. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks. And you were just a treasure trove of, of information and insight into like even those wartime films that help illuminate what was on Ford's mind during that part of his career. Uh, I had a blast. There's, there's so much to dig into. It's, it's ridiculous. We could do another however many hours i'm sure but. that's right let's yes <laughs> yeah we've skipped over enough for two or three more episodes <laughs> but you guys stay tuned for the second one which will be coming up a little later this year and if you guys listening in have uh, thoughts and comments or criticisms or some of the many other ford films that you want to talk about you can feel free to Send an email our way at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We're reachable on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, on Facebook over at the Directors Club Podcast, and on Twitter under DC Podcast. So uh, thanks for listening, and I hope to catch you soon on another episode of the Directors Club. Right off into the sunset. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, that's right. Wherever people are going to be comparing horror films with westerns, we'll be there. <laughs> Whenever someone's going to go and compare um, a person from a, a British war film with a character from Lord of the Rings, we will be there. <laughs>